Five minutes after 6 a.m. Good morning, everybody. My name is Nachum Siegel. Welcome to a Tuesday. This is your Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program. Today is day two in the month of Menachem Av. Today is day two of our nine days format here at JM in the AM. And if yesterday could be classified as rally day, as demonstration day, a day where we spent the bulk of the morning encouraging people to be on the streets of New York City to demonstrate on behalf of Israel. If yesterday was demonstration day, today I think we could say is Tehillim Day and Prayer Day. At 8 o'clock this morning, courtesy of our friends at the Orthodox Union, we are going to be participating or airing and encouraging people to participate in a um, short Tehillim service, which is going to be provided round the world. And uh, will be uh, aired on this uh, radio station. And everyone will have an opportunity collectively to participate in the OU's Tehillim campaign for today. More details coming up, and we'll explain the whole thing, of course, coming up here at JM and the AM. Um a, a, a tremendous showing yesterday in New York City. And thank God, this is a radio show that emphasizes who was at the rally. Who was at the demonstration. Who was on the streets of New York when our brothers and sisters are in need thousands of miles away. Thank God this is a radio show that emphasizes who was there yesterday for Israel. If it was a show that discussed who wasn't there, it would be a much different show. Our nine days format is um, privileged to present the lectures by Beryl Wine uh, this week, or at least at the beginning of this week, we are concentrating on his series entitled Jewish Values. Uh, Rabbi Wine, uh, information about uh, all of his lectures, Jewish history and otherwise, are available at the Destiny Foundation, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com, or by dialing 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-9346. Today we present Rabbi Beryl Wine on the topic of family from his series Jewish Values at JM in the AM. Family is a very difficult uh, topic to discuss because it's uh, sensitive, emotional, and uh, everybody has their own stories to tell about it. But family as a value uh, is the, one of really the basic pillars of Judaism. The Rabboni Shalom said to us, Rak eschem yodati mikol mishpachoso adama. Your family do I know from all of the families which exist in the world. And uh, Judaism, which is a faith, uh, Jews are a nation, Jews are a race, Jews are a religion, the Jews are a family. And we see ourselves as being a family. And the family has uh, ups and downs, 
but a family has a bond uh, that is able to span all generations. And really that indicates more than anything else what the Jewish people are. If we were not a family, for instance, we would not have been able to accomplish the ingathering of the exiles which has taken place here in the land of Israel over the last 60 years. People from all parts of the world, uh, different cultures, different experiences, different colors, uh, different traditions. But because it's family, it's family. I uh, always uh, think of uh, the famous story with Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, in New York. Uh, the Soloveitchiks are well known for their family affiliation uh, no matter uh, what or who you are. If you're related to them, so then, uh, then they'll go through anything for you. So uh, he was uh, in his uh, heyday as a, uh, as a Rosh Yeshiva. He was saying the shir in Yeshiva Srebrenica Yitzchok Honen in New York. And uh, he was a terror. I mean, he... Uh, the, the students, uh, he brooked uh, no uh, comments and uh, silly questions. And, you know, you sat there in awe. And uh, once he was teaching, uh, and he explained a matter, uh, a difficult matter in the Talmud, and the student had the temerity to raise his hand and say, Rebbe, Rebbe Aaron doesn't say like that. So Rabbi Soloveitchik assumed that Rabaran meant Rabaran Cutler, the uh, the other major Rosh Yeshiva in America, the founder of the Lakewood Yeshiva, the Kletzka Rosh Yeshiva. So he waved them off, you know, he kept on going. But the student persisted. And after another minute, he raised his hand and he said, Rebbe, but Rabaran doesn't say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik uh, fixed him with an atomic look. And he said, uh, who cares what Rebaran says, right? We're, uh, and he kept on going. The student does it for a third time. He raises his hand and he says, Rebaran, Rebbe, Rebaran does not say like that. So now Rabbi Soloveitchik is, you know, the steam is coming out from his ears. And uh, he says, I don't care what Rabbi Cutler says. And the student said, no, not Rabbi Aaron Cutler, your brother Rabbi Aaron. He said, oh, get up and say what he says, please. <laughs> the Torah saw the Jewish people as a family. And therefore, family became a value. And the preservation of family is, one could say, the primary value in Jewish life. When God chooses Avraham Avinu to be the father of our people, and the one that brings monotheism to the world, to other civilizations as well, so God does not list his piety, nor does God list his intelligence, nor does he even list the sacrifice and the risk of life that Avraham Avinu undertook in order to promote monotheism, that he went into the furnace of fire, or the ten nisionos that he had, none of that is listed. The Rabboni Sholem says, 
Why did I choose Avraham? Ki yodativ l'man asher yitzavez, bonovez, beiso achrov. He will be able to build a family. He'll be able to inculcate it in his children and in generations that come afterwards that they will go in the path of God and they'll continue in his mission. So it makes Avram, and we call him Avram Avinu, Avram our father. We don't call him by any other name. We call him our father. So what makes Avram Avram is family. And therefore the Chumash Breshis deals only with the story of family. Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. So the family there also has ups and downs. Has misunderstandings and disputes. But at the end of the Parsha, at the end of the Chumash, at the end of the story, the Jewish people are a family. And that became our hallmark. And the Torah says, You're not allowed to close your eyes to your relatives, to your family. And therefore, Jews are bound together by a bond of blood, not only by a bond of faith. Uh, that's a very, very important thing because it colors our entire attitude. It enables us, you know, somehow to be able to uh, rise above all of the problems that we have and all the differences that we have. And we're a very fractious people. We have always been. And we're able to rise above all of that because, you know, it's my brother. So let's hear what he has to say. In our time, in our generation, over the last 35 years, especially in Western civilization, in the United States, in Europe, and here in Israel as well, unfortunately, the family has been under siege. The traditional concepts, marriage, children, family, two parents in a home, all of that has been uh, decimated. I want to read for you a uh, portion of an article that appeared in the New York Times. Uh, I think it was either last Saturday or Sunday. Uh, the article was written by a man by the name of David Brooks. And he uh, imagines that he meets Karl Marx today. And Karl Marx tells him that his old manifesto what he said about the working class and about the uh, capitalism, etc., uh, he admits that all of that is wrong, right? That's been disproved. But he has a new manifesto. And the new manifesto, uh, he uh, writes about it, what Marx would say today. And here is one uh, point that he makes uh, that's really significant and significant, I think, to our conversation here this evening. He said, more than the Roman emperors, more than the industrial robber barons, the male factors of the educated class seek not only to dominate the working class, 
but to decimate it. For 30 years they have presided over failing schools without fundamentally attempting to transform them. They have imposed a public morality that affords them maximum sexual opportunity, but guarantees maximum domestic chaos and ruin for those who are lower down the ladder. In 1960, there were not big structural differences in the United States between rich and poor families. In 1960, more than 75% of poor couples were headed by a married couple. Now, less than a third are. While the rates of single parenting have barely changed for the educated elite, the family structure has disintegrated for those lower down the oppressed masses. Poor children are likely to live with, are less likely to live with both biological parents, hence less likely to graduate from school, less likely to get a job, less likely to be in a position to challenge the hegemony of the privileged class. Family inequality produces income inequality from generation to generation. It generates crime, violence, and eventually the destruction of society. Well said, Carl. Because that's what happened. So that you have entire generations that grow up without family, without a sense of family. And without that sense, uh, the child is automatically disenfranchised, sees the world through skewed eyes, is at a disadvantage. And the Torah came to emphasize the importance of family. And therefore, amongst Jews, which were always, we were persecuted, 99% uh, of all Jews in the exile were poor. It's not like it is today. This is the most affluent generation in Jewish history. Absolutely the most affluent generation. And we take it for granted that it's supposed to be that way. Uh, but it was not that way. It was not that way uh, as late as uh, 45 years ago. It was not that way. But even in the poorest of families, there was a structure. There was a family. Somebody was home for you. Somebody cared about you. And therefore, the people could be successful. But if there is no family structure, and if it's all ad hoc, so then uh, we live in a time of great difficulties. And we see it here in our country as well, the crime rate. Every day you hear another murder, uh, two murders, three murders. This was a country that never had a murder. When they built the first... Uh, prison in Tel Aviv in the 1920s, so the prison stood empty for three years. They didn't have any customers. And then one day in Tel Aviv, the police finally caught a ganiv, they caught a thief, so Bialik wrote a poem. 
in honor of the occasion because he said, now at least we're a normal people. Now so now we're plenty normal. Because the breakdown of family eventually leads to the breakdown of society. It gives rise to all of the ills that we are aware of. So it says in the Torah, Vayishma Moshe Es'om Bochel Mishpachosov. We will have it uh, shortly in the Chumash Bamidbar. Uh, Moshe heard that the people uh, wept, the families wept. So the Gemara says, what does it mean, Bochel Mishpachosov? It should say, Hamishpachot Bachu. The families wept. What's Bochel Limishpachosov? To the, to the Indian, to the uh, idea of, regarding the idea of family. So the Gemara says, Al Iske Mishpachosov. They wept because of the fact that now that they had the Torah, the Torah emphasized family. It limited them. It limited them sexually. It limited them in social values. It kept them at home. It gave them a different sense of responsibility. They wanted to have the freedom. They wanted to be of a generation that does whatever it wants to do. Everything goes. And therefore, that's why they wept. They wept over the fact that family means responsibility. And that without family responsibility, not only did Jewish people have no future, individual Jews have no future, and society general generally has no future. The rabbis emphasized family to such an extent that they said... Uh, Wild things, uh, at least on the surface. Rabbi Lezer says, Bitcho Bogra, you have a daughter that's old enough to get married, and you can't find the suitable Shidduch. Shachrer Avdecha, you have a slave. Free the slave and marry him off to her. Now, what's that? That is the emphasis on family. The emphasis on family is such that for the sake of family, as we'll see in a few moments here, I hope, we'll see that the rabbis advocated great compromises, personal compromises, for the sake of family. And... uh, In our world uh, where uh, matchmaking has gone wild, where it's uh, almost, uh, it would almost be uh, humorous if it weren't so tragic, uh, the Torah looked at it differently. And that's what Rabbi Eleazar said. Family is an overriding value. It even overrides uh, the search for the perfect mate. Because uh, basically, uh, except for rabbis, they're hard to find. And uh, so all of life is compromised. Family is compromised. Marriage is compromised. 
But if the value of family is primary, if that's the priority in life, and the priority in Jewish life, so then it overrides uh, many times uh, personal wants and ideas. So we're going to have two sides to the question, uh, which the Gemara discusses and does not ever come to a conclusion. One side of the discussion is uh, not to bring into one's family people that are not proper. They will disrupt the family. So the Gemara teaches us, for instance, Echod shenoso isho sheno There's a family that one of the sons marries a woman who is not proper for him. Now, Eino in its uh, Talmudic sense, in the sense of halacha, means that she was forbidden to him. It's a relationship which the halacha forbids. But in its broadest sense, it means it's just not fitting. It's not right. It doesn't belong in that family. So the Gemara says, Boyin bnei mishpocha, it was the custom in the time of the Talmud. The other members of the family came, umevin chovis mleo peros, and they brought a barrel, a bushel full of fruit, vishovrinosa beemsa rechova, and in the mid, they would put it down in the middle of the street, Everybody would then be looking, and they would break the barrel, or break the bushel open so that the fruit would roll on the street. And people would say, Mazer, what, what is that about? The Omrim, and they would say, Achenu b'nei Yisrael, our brothers, the children of Israel. Shimu, listen to us. Achinu Ploni, our brother so-and-so. And they said his name. Nosa Isha Sheino Geneslo has married a woman that's improper. Therefore, he has damaged our family. And he's damaged the society as well. And we want you to know about it. And we see in the Gomorrah, we'll see in a minute that the Gomorrah is in favor of uh, public acknowledgement that it was a mistake rather than to cover it up. Because by covering it up, there's an acquiescence to it. I have this que- I've had this question so many times in, uh, in my rabbinic career. It's tragic, but it's the question that exists, and certainly in the American rabbinate. Right? This, he's an Orthodox Jew. you got a cousin, and the cousin is going to marry a non-Jew. And his aunt... Uh, who was his beloved aunt, and who went to every birthday party, and, uh, you know, and they always had, his aunt insists that he should come to the wedding. They should be, you know, because what can we do? We have to make her closer, we have to bring her, you know. And, and, uh, shall he go? So my answer was always a resounding no. They can do what they want, but you don't have to be part of it. And so then I would get a call from the aunt. And, uh, you know, so I always ended up the villain. 
but this Gemara shows us uh, that, uh, you know, that if we have to break the bushel in the street and say it's not proper, it's not proper. There has to remain some standard of what a family is. And if everything goes as it does in today's world, there is no standard. So then, Ma said, and what's the noise about? How, how can you uh, begin even to attack the problem of intermarriage if you accept it as a fact and you accept it as uh, something that... Uh, in many instances, it even overlooked. I even had a worse scenario, but that was when I was younger, so I was, uh, you know, when you're younger, you know a lot. As, as you get older, you know less and less. So I was really uh, young then, I think it was the first or second year that I was in the Rabonis, and someone came to me that... Uh, uh, their relatives uh, were having a bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah was going to be celebrated in a non-Orthodox congregation. And what should we do? So uh, I told them not to go. So they said, how can we not go? It's our relative, and it's a close relative and everything, and we won't go to Davin there, and they uh, I said, yeah, I said, I'm not telling you what to do. You asked me what, uh, you know, my opinion. That's my opinion. And what happened is that they didn't go. And because they didn't go, it made such an impression on the other relatives that eventually the other relatives became orthodox. Now, I can't guarantee that that's going to happen. <laughs> but this is an absolute true story. And it's all based on this Gomorrah, right? Without the Gomorrah, I would hesitate to say anything, because how do I know? But the Gomorrah says that for the preservation of the standards of family, it should be dealt with strongly. It should not be covered over. And even though it's an embarrassment, you know, imagine, you know, you go break a barrel of fruit in the middle of the street and you make such an announcement, you know... Not nice. But we are looking for an overriding value here. And the overriding value is the preservation of Jewish family and Jewish home. And improper marriages, halachically improper marriages, are not the way to secure family or to secure Jewish survival. Chazal therefore said, Oilol. Woe to someone who through his behavior uh, makes his generations pasul, really meaning that he hurts their pedigree. And and the entire family suffers thereby. We have a great Gemara that says, the Gemara asks, the, the Gemara was discussing uh, uh, the fact that uh, the Romans executed robbers, uh, smugglers, uh, people that did things illegally. And uh, so the Gemara asked, well, you know, the robber, the smuggler, he's got a coming to him. But why should the rest of the family suffer thereby? In other words, in God's system of justice, when the criminal is punished, 
So uh, let the criminal be punished. I mean, why does the mother have to suffer? You know, we see always that the, the, the son is a murderer and the mother says he's a good boy. Because that's a mother. So why should it be that the family should suffer as well? The Gemara says a frightening thing. The Gemara says every family that has criminals in the family cover up for them. They cover up. So it's very hard to, uh, you know, to go against your own flesh and blood. And it's very hard to look realistically at your own flesh and blood. And so what if he's a smuggler? But the Gemara says that since they cover up for him, so therefore they undermine the whole sense of rectitude that exists within the Jewish people, and therefore they are also part of the punishment. So we have here almost a collective guilt, not just the guilt of the criminal, of the person alone, but the guilt of everyone around, because we tolerate it. We could say that about our society here also. We tolerate a lot of things that we know are wrong, that we're embarrassed about. But uh, who wants to get mixed up? Who wants to say anything? But though we who tolerate it are also tarred by that brush. You know, we are also damaged by it. You know, we are, so to speak, part of the corruption also. And the Gemara is very, uh, very strong in this area makes very, very few allowances because of the fact that, again, this is the overriding value that's one side of the coin, right? So one side of the coin is uncompromising, right? Now, you have the other side of the coin uh, to protect my family. The Gemara says a case in the Dorim that a man comes before the Bezdin and he said, I, uh, I uh, pledge to become a Nazir, to take the vows of Naziru to be, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, not to shave for 30 days and not to drink wine and to be celibate and to stay away from all troubles. I take all of that upon myself on the condition that I will not reveal what I know about my family. I won't reveal what's wrong with my family. Now, the rule is that we go to all lengths to prevent people from becoming a Nazir. The Gemara says that uh, Shimon Atzadik, the great Kohen Godel, uh, never participated in the uh, sacrifice of a Nazir, because he said, uh, isn't it not enough what the Torah forbade for you? You've got to make it more yet, right? The, the Torah said that, uh, you know, uh, you can drink wine and you don't want to drink wine. The Torah said that you can you know, take a haircut and be uh, presentable and you want to be unkempt. The Torah, therefore, he would not participate, except there was one case. One case, he said, where he felt that the man was truly a Nazir, 
And he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus in order to prevent himself from sinning. The Gemara says that he was uh, so handsome and that, that it was uh, like it was impossible for him to resist on his own the evil inclination. And therefore, in order to strengthen himself, he took upon himself the vows of Nazirus. So that was the only time that Shimon HaTzadik said he saw a legitimate Nazir. So our public policy is to be against the Nazir. Here comes a man before us, and we can get him out of being a Nazir. We just have to say, okay, so tell us what you want to tell us about your family. The Gemara says just the opposite. Yehei Nazir velo yegale mishpochas. Let him be a Nazir. And let him not break the confidence of his family. So here you have an exact opposite of what we had before. Before, you know, you take a bushel of fruit and you're breaking it in the middle of the street and you're saying, you know, my brother so-and-so, he married a woman that he shouldn't have married when we said before that he's a smuggler, you know. And here the Gemara says that, well, don't reveal anything. So, uh, the Mephorshim discussed this, the commentators to the Talmud, that's discussed what, to, how to reconcile, if it's reconcilable. Uh, but the general rule is, what will preserve the family? What is in the best interest of the family? So there are times that the best interest of the family is to make a whole tumult about it, and to reveal and to, and to make accusations, and that will save the family. And there are times that what saves the family is to be quiet about it. How do you know what to do when? So that we have no instruction book. Because that's true of most of the Torah. And most of the Talmud, certainly, we have conflicting ideas all the time, different policies. So how do I know which policy I should follow? So if you're blessed with a great rabbi or a Hasidic mentor or someone to ask, so then their advice could be valuable. But even then, the decision is always ours. And that's really what makes life interesting, is because we're not certain that we have ever made the right decisions. The Talmud tells, that, tells us that regarding Joseph and his brothers. Now, there's a family matter. Why did a brother sell Joseph? What's, what's got into them? They see him as a threat to the entire family. He speaks evil about them. Uh, he estranges them from their father. He invents stories about them. He's, he's a danger. The whole family will be destroyed by this 17-year-old uh, teenager who, uh, you know, who has no sense of proportion as to what's going on. And therefore they decide that in order to save the family, they have to destroy the brother. So we all know the story. They sell him. 22, year late, 22 years later, they meet him. 
And at the end, he says to them, Ani Yosef, I'm Yosef, I'm the one that you sold. So in the Gemara, it says that the brothers couldn't, the brothers were in shock. They were traumatized. They couldn't respond to him. So the Bali Musers say, the great men of the Muslim movement, they say what was part of their trauma, aside from the shock of seeing Yosef, was that until now they had thought that they had done the right thing. Until now they were convinced that they had saved the family. And because they were convinced that they saved the family, they were willing to put up with Jacob's grief all the years to see their father weep and weep, and they knew the truth, and they never told it to him because of the fact that they were going to save the family. They were going to save the future generations. Now, all of a sudden, he says, Ani Yosef, here I am, and you all got to come down here, and I'm going to save you and bring my father down, and here's Binyamin, my brother. So then they realized that they made a mistake. Instead of saving the family, they almost destroyed the family. J.M. in the A.M. in the middle of uh, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on family from his Jewish Values series here in our nine days format. Welcome to a Tuesday, the second day of Menachem Av, the second day of our nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. With 65 degrees, 71% humidity, winds are west at five miles an hour, mostly sunny today with a high of 81 most would figure if it's the nine days, the temperature would be about 20 degrees warmer. <laughs> Partly cloudy tonight, low 65, and tomorrow mostly sunny, a high temperature 82 degrees. Yerushalayim is at 90, Tel Aviv at 86, Haifa at 88, a lot at 100. Up in uh, Guilford, New York, our friends in Camp Missora at 54 degrees. Heading up to 71. Let me commend uh, Camp Misora, Camp Morasha, Camp Moshava, Camp Ramah, all of whom were part of yesterday's rally in New York City. Let me commend the 10,000 people, maybe more, who were on the streets of New York on 2nd Avenue uh, yesterday for a... Uh, a great demonstration of support for Israel. And if today, if yesterday was a rally day, if yesterday was a day to encourage people to rally and demonstrate, today is a Tehillim day. Today we'll be joining our friends at uh, the Orthodox Union. They have come up with a an international recitation of Tehillim. The OU, the RCA, Yeshiva University, the National Council of Young Israel, is inviting their synagogues, members, friends, students, alumni, and the entire Jewish world to join together uh, this morning at 8 a.m. Eastern Time with two chapters of Tehillim, the Mishaberach for the IDF, the Paragraph of Achenu. Uh, you can participate uh, wherever you are at 8 o'clock this morning Eastern Time. You can be, participate in synagogue. You can participate by dialing in. And you can participate by listening to us. We'll air the entire service coming up at 8 o'clock Eastern Time this morning here at JM in the AM. And we are told that the Tehillim will be led by Harav Shmuel Eliyahu, Chief Rabbi of Tzfat, son of the former Chief Rabbi, Rav Mordechai Eliyahu. Uh, Rav Shmuel Eliyahu is going to lead 
the Tehillim under the uh, leadership and direction of the OU uh, later this morning. So uh, if yesterday was rally day, today is Tehillim day and a uh, day that um, hopefully will attract uh, thousands around the world to pray together. Yesterday was a very difficult day for our brothers and sisters in Israel. The war is... uh, the war is getting even more serious, it seems. And um, we'll keep a close eye on what's happening in Israel and certainly ask the one above for his help and guidance. I'm glad that this radio program concentrates on who was at the rally yesterday. The thousands of people, the different groups. Um, it's good that we concentrate, especially during the nine days, on who was at the rally. It would be terrible, and we will not, as much as we're often encouraged to do so, we will not start discussing who was not at yesterday's demonstration. We'll simply discuss who was at yesterday's demonstration. Such an important demonstration. Such an important rally in support of Israel. And if you were there, Kolakavod, if you tried to be there, Kolakavod, I know people who tried to get there and literally uh, at specific points after 1 p.m. could not get close to 2nd Avenue and 47th Street. So if you tried, Kolakavod, if under normal circumstances you would have been there, I'd even say Kolakavod. But too many people... Unfortunately, we're missing. And not all of them were traveling to Israel to be with our brothers and sisters. Hard to believe that it was a week ago that we were in Israel with our brothers and sisters who had just made Aliyah, who had just moved to the Holy Land. That was a very special day, Tuesday, one week ago, when we were uh, deplaning with hundreds of Olim and watching a very modest ceremony in Ben Gurion Airport for all those who had arrived on this flight. There's another flight coming up, and we hope to be in Israel next week and share some of that magic with you, courtesy of our friends at Nefesh Benefesh. But we wondered last Tuesday what the August flight would be like. What would conditions in Israel be like? What would conditions regarding the celebration in Ben-Gurion Airport be like? We're getting closer and closer to finding out as this very challenging summer continues for the people of Israel and especially for our brothers and sisters in the state of Israel. JM and the AM at 12 minutes before 7 o'clock. We'll continue with our Iberal Wine. Our nine days format features his amazing lectures. He's speaking on the topic of family right now. Rabbi Beryl Wine at 1-800-499-WEIN, one 800 499 W-E-I-N, or on the web, RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And therefore they were frightened. Uh, the Gemara says, Woe to us from the day of judgment. Because the brothers were going to come to heaven and say, we saved the family at all of this expense and pain and everything. But look, we saved our family. We have a mitzvah. And now the mitzvah turned into an avera. 
The positive turned into the negative. And the Torah purposely tells us that story to realize uh, that it's treacherous ground that we're on. It's not simple. There are many times in families where uh, there's a child that requires special needs. So many times in such families, the other children, but to a certain extent, are neglected because of it. How do you make such choices? How do you know what to do? Now, life is difficult. Family life is doubly difficult. But the overriding value here that Chazal emphasized is that a person has to do what is good for the family. Sometimes it's clear. Most times in life it is not clear. Most times it is confusing. And therefore, uh, counselors, uh, experts, uh, spiritual uh, leaders are necessary to help us that we should have some sort of idea of uh, which side uh, this matter falls on, what we should do. The Ravoni Shalom, the Gemara says, is proud of the Jewish family because it has yichas. Now, yichas in its popular sense uh, means that uh, you're uh, descended from the Rothschilds or that uh, your grandfather was a great Rosh Hashiva or something like that. That's the uh, Rebbe, that's yichas. But the Gemara doesn't, the Gemara is not talking about that kind of yichas. Again, we're going to see here two opposites. I want you to leave this lecture thoroughly confused. And I have the great ability to do so. So, yichas in the Gemara means that there is no uh, illegal, non-halachic marriage in the family. That's what yichas is. That's the bottom line of yichas. And the Gemara says uh, that the Kohanim, when they got married, would check back certain amount of generations. And the Gemara said that if there were certain presumptions regarding uh, a family, so then that was su- sufficient. You didn't have to check anymore. But Yichus is important. And therefore the Gemara says that the Rabboni Shalom, so to speak, cho- chose the Jewish people because we have a book of Yichus. And when the nations of the world came to complain that God is not fair in somehow choosing the Jewish people and dealing with them, so he said, Bring me your Yichus book. Well, the nations of the world, uh, the Yichus book is pretty uh, blotched. And that's why it says, Bring to God, show me your families. Show me your sense of families. And therefore, uh, Yichus became very important. The Gemara says, Ashkina shore rak al mishpochas miyuchos Yisrael. The Shechina descends only on Jewish families that have Yichus, that do not have within their family improper marriages, improper relationships. And then the Gemara raises the ante. 
The Gemara is much in favor that when a man looks for a spouse, he should marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Le'olam yimkor odom kol lo, the Gemara says. A person should sell everything that he has. So it doesn't mean only to sell everything. It means he should overlook many things. V'yelech v'yisa bas Talmud Chochem. And he should go and marry the daughter of a Talmud Chochem. Of a, of a Torah scholar. Rashi there says a terribly practical reason. Rashi says because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But Bas Talmud Chochem is, uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed in these matters. The fact that our world is... uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what, what what's right. So, Yichus is important. I'll tell you a Gemara that 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 you know that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says. A person should always look to come into a family of goodness, of good people, righteous people. What's the proof? Sharei Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Shenoso Bas Yisro, that he married into the family of Yisro, so Yisro is a Ger Tzedek, and Sipor is certainly a Tzitkonius, but it's a Gornit Geholfen. Yotzam Imenu Yonason, he had a grandson that was a priest to idolatry. It says in the Tanakh, the Yonason, it says Ben Menashe. But the nun of Menashe is written outside the line, on top of the line, because it's Ben Moshe, but the Tanakh didn't want to say it fully. So therefore they said Menashe, but they put the nun on top, so if you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, you don't understand. But Moshe Rabbeinu has a grandson. I mean, think about it. Pel Pe'adaberbo. The whole base the greatest of all human beings. So he has a grandson that's uh, a priest of Odazora, right? The Aaron, his brother Aaron. So Aaron made the eagle. Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron is blemished. Aaron himself, while Moshe is not. 
Shenoso Elisheva Bas Aminodov. He married the daughter of Aminodov, the prince of Yehuda, the father of Nachshon. And therefore, Yotza Mimenu Pinchas. J.M. in the A.M., or I barrel wine on the topic of family. That's the name of this lecture. We'll get to its conclusion at some point in the next few minutes here at J.M. in the A.M. Our nine days format continues on this Tuesday morning. I remind you that the, um, I remind you that the Tehillim session is one hour from now, led by the uh, OU and with participation from the uh, RCA, Yeshiva University, National Council of Young Israel. It will come from the OU Center in Israel. One hour from now, we'll have an opportunity to pray together. Yet another thing that we can do together on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Israel. Tuesday morning on this July 29th, the second of Menachem Av, or by Beryl Wine's lectures at 1-800-499-WEIN, 1-800-499-WEIN, or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. We've been telling you about our mayor Bracha and Yerushalayim, who are asking people to get in touch with them before you come to Israel this week, because they need things like talcum powder, insect repellent, towels, underwear, socks, tzitzis, moist towelettes, toothbrushes, and toothpaste for these soldiers in Israel. And uh, we were asked to uh, not only give out their website, which is one way you can support the cause, terror-victims.org.il, terror-victims.org.il, but also to give out their uh, regular mailing address here in the New York area so people could send in donations if you wish. And that's a 455 Viola Road in Spring Valley, New York. That's 455 Viola Road in Spring Valley, New York, and the zip code is 10977, 10977. Again, that's R. Mayor Bracha, 455 Viola Road in Spring Valley, New York. The zip code is 10977. It's America's one and only Jewish Moments in the Morning Radio program heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmnam.org, a big, big yeshikoch to those who came out for yesterday's rally in New York City. Those of you who would like to pray together for our brothers and sisters in Israel, we will have a Tehillim session. The OU has coordinated with many great sponsoring organizations. Happens one hour from now. We'll do it live on the air, so make sure to stay tuned in for that. Check out all the photos from yesterday's rally that uh, we posted on the Nahum Siegel Network Facebook update page. Check out the Nahum Siegel Network Facebook update page. Make sure to like the page and check out all the photos from New York City yesterday. Ended up being a great-looking day, and it ended up being a great day of support for our brothers and sisters in Israel. Again, go to the uh, Facebook update page, Nahum Siegel Network, and you can explore uh, all those uh, photos from yesterday. In our nine days format here at JM and the AM, and um, our stream, our network, what goes on on jmandtheam.org and nahumsiegel.com all day long will reflect a nine days format all through this week 
We'll get back to a regular format, so to speak, at 1 p.m. Eastern Time next Wednesday on the 10th of Av, and then we'll start our broadcast from Israel as we head back to the Holy Land. As I said earlier, it's hard to believe that it was one week ago that we were speaking to you from the Holy Land and arriving with Nefesh Benefesh on that unique Aliyah flight during these challenging times. We weren't sure at that time what the August 11th flight would look like, what type of celebration there would be, whether it'd be, uh, it would be uh, scaled down or not. We're getting closer to that date. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Also, I, I remember that, um, well, you know what? We'll save that topic. Let's see how long things go. Let's hope and pray that peace comes to our uh, Holy Land very, very soon. And uh, if we see that things continue to operate on the scale that it does, then we'll get into the topics that we had originally planned. Galit Sal, Israel Army Radio, 2 p.m. newscast for a Tuesday is next. Boker Tov from JMN. Galit Sal, Ashtayim, Tanrani Avnei, Ima Shekorei Achshav. Rohim Tzvayi Bachir Omer, Shum Metzapek, Ki Aderg HaMedini Achriya Le'an Pnei HaMivtza, Siyum O Harchava. לדבריו, אם יונחה, צהל ארוך לסיים את משימותיו בתוך 24 עד 48 שעות. הוא ציין כי מי שמדבר על מיתות חמאס צריך להבין שהמשמעות היא כיבוש הרצועה ושהות בה למשך חודשים או שנים. הגורם הצבאי הבכיר אמר כי לדעתו רוב מטרות המבצע בידינו והוסיף לא ניתן להגיע לכל פיר או לכל רקטה, אך ניתן לצמצמם ככל האפשר. השגנו הרתעה משמעותית. מנגד חבר הקבינט השר נפתלי בנט שב וקורא להכריע את חמאס ולא להסתפק רק בהשמדת המנהרות. כתבנו עידו בן בג'י. רק הכרעה ברורה תמנע את המלחמה הבאה, כתב בנט בדף הפייסבוק שלו, והתייחס גם ללחץ האמריקני לסיים את המבצע. למנהיגים הזרים המבקשים מאיתנו לעצור, נאמר בנימוס, האם אתם מוכנים להילחם במקומנו? אם לא, נא לפנות לנו את הדרך עד שנסיים את המלאכה. כך בנט. גם השר סילבן שלום קורא להרחיב את המבצע, כתבתנו יערה שפירא שמעה אותו כשהגיעה לבקר פצועים בבית החולים סורוקה בבאר שבע. הם כולם אומרים למה אנחנו עדיין פה, רוצים להשתחרר ולחזור לשם. האחדות שיש בפעם הזאת היא באמת חוצת מחנות. עם ישראל כולו מרגיש שיש צורך לשים סוף לירי הזה לעבר הדרום בשני המובנים. גם שהמערכה הזאת לא תסתיים עד שלא יחוסלו המנהרות ועד שלא תפורז עזה. סמל ראשון משה דווינו שנפל בפעילות מבצעית ברצועה יובא למנוחות בעוד כשעה בהר הרצל. גם רב טוראי מידן מימון ביטון שנהרג מפגיעת הפצמ"ר באשכול התאמן בשלוש בנתיבות. מוקדם יותר הובא למנוחות סמל ראשון אליאב חיים כחלון זכרו לברכה שנפגע גם הוא בתקרית הפצמ"ר. כתבנו גיא ורון שמע את אחיו נועם. אליהו היה חייל אמיתי אדם שתמיד אומר את מה שיושב על ליבו, מסור לעבודתו והרוב בפלוגה, תמיד משדר רצינות עם חיוך קטן על הפנים, אהב לעזור ולתרום, היה דבק במשימה ולא מבטל עד שמסיים אותה בהצלחה. צה"ל קרא בצהריים לתושבי מזרח חאן יונס באמצעות כרוזים ושיחות טלפון להתפנות מבתיהם. במקביל, גם בשעה האחרונה נמשך ירי הרקטות לעבר ישראל מגבול הרצועה, כתבנו רמי שני. שגרת היום מתבטאת בירי טורדני של רקטות קצרות טווח בעיקר לעבר יישובים במערב הנגב. במהלך השעה ולמעשה בשעות האחרונות נורו כארבע רקטות בשני מטחים בכל שעה ובסך הכל נורו היום 29 רקטות לחבלי ההתיישבות אשכול, שדות נגב, מרחבים, שער הנגב וחוף אשקלון. ארבע רקטות יורטו 
בכל המקרים אין דיווחים על נפגעים או נזקים, אבל הצורך להיכנס בכל פעם למרחב מוגן בהחלט מטריד ופוגע בשגרת החיים בעוטף עזה, אזור הנמצא כבר שבועות ארוכים בשגרת חירום. בדקות האחרונות נשמעו אזעקות בזיקים ובכרמיה, לא ידוע לפי שעה על נפגעים. הנהלת אוניברסיטת בר אילן מגנה את דבריו של מרצה למשפטים שהביע הזדהות עם תושבי עזה, כתבתנו תמר פלד. הפרופסור למשפטים חנוך שיינמן כתב לסטודנטים, אני מקווה שאתם והקרובים לכם אינכם בין מאות האנשים שנהרגו, האלפים שנפצעו, או עשרות האלפים שבתיהם נהרסו ונאלצו לעזוב את בתיהם במהלך או כתוצאה ישירה מהעימות האלים ברצועת עזה וסביבתה. מהנהלת הפקולטה נמסר בתגובה כי מכתבו של הפרופסור חנוך שיינמן מנוגד לערכי האוניברסיטה ואינו ראוי. אלה חדשות שעורך הדר שיפר. J.M. and the A.M., we are uh, about uh, 55 minutes away from the uh, recitation of Tehillim together and Achenu and the uh, Meshaberach for Tzahal, uh, which is coming up at the top of the hour, top of the 8 o'clock hour uh, here in uh, the New Jersey, New York area. We invite our listeners around the world to participate, and I thank our friends at the OU for coordinating all of this and uh, helping us um, uh, present... The Tehillim session uh, coming up at the top of the hour here at JM in the AM. So that's happening at uh, 8 o'clock this morning. Stay tuned for that, and we thank you. Um, we are uh, concluding Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, lecture on family from the series entitled Jewish Values. Information 1-800-499-WEIN or... RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. She says, because if he dies, she'll raise the children to be Jews. Others give more, uh, what shall I say, more attractive reasons. And she has uh, good manners, she saw Torah in her house, etc., etc. But Bas Talmud Chochem is... Uh, is supreme. Right? The Gemara, by the way, has harsh things to say about people who marry for money. That's a Gemara that is famous by not being taught. And uh, the the Gemara, by the way, uh, you know, uh, the Gemara is very hard-headed. In these matters, the fact that our world is uh, 180 degrees opposite from the Gemara doesn't change the Gemara. Doesn't change what the Gemara says, and doesn't change what what what's right. So, Yichus is important. Well, I'll tell you a Gemara that, 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 you know, that to me always shocked me. The Gemara says, A person should always look to come into a family of goodness, of good people, righteous people. What's the proof? Sharei Moshe, Moshe Rabbeinu. Shenoso Bas Yisro, that he married into the family of Yisro, so Yisro is a Gertzedek, and Sipoah is certainly a Tzitkonius. 
but it's a Gornit Geholfen. Yotzimimenu Yonason. He had a grandson that was a priest to idolatry. It says in the Tanakh, the Yonason, it says Ben Menashe. But the Nun of Menashe is written outside the line, on top of the line, because it's Ben Moshe, but the Tanakh didn't want to say it fully. So therefore they said Menashe, but they put the Nun on top, so if you understand, you understand. If you don't understand, you don't understand. But Moshe Rabbeinu has a grandson. I mean, think about it. Pel Pe'adaberbo. The greatest of all human beings. So he has a grandson that's uh, a priest of Odazora, right? The Aaron, his brother Aaron. So Aaron made the eagle. Aaron, uh, you know, Aaron is blemished. Aaron himself, while Moshe is not. Shenoso Elisheva Bas Aminodov. He married the daughter of Aminodov, the prince of Yehuda, the father of Nachshon. And therefore, Yotza Mimenu Pinchas. So his grandson is Pinchas, that's going to be Makari Shem Shemayim. That the Rabboni Shalom will save an Asati Lobrisi Sholom. I have a special covenant of peace for him. So, I mean, the Gemara is a shock, right? I mean, who would say this? But the Gemara wants to emphasize the importance of family. So, if you marry into the family of Yisro, so even if you're Moshe Rabbeinu, Yisro's genes come down somehow, you know, just like their genetic qualities that exist in the physical world, right? The doctors today say that from our DNA, they can almost predict what's going to happen to us. I don't like to go to such a doctor. <laughs> but they can predict. Because we are uh, within a certain genetic box, right? There are exceptions. Rabboni Shalom uh, still runs the show, but basically... Uh, you know, it's pretty clear what's going to be. Well, just as there are physical f- genetics, there are spiritual genetics as well. That's one of the beliefs of the Jewish people. There are spiritual genetics as well. And so therefore, Yisro and his family, that's a recessive gene. The Gemara says that that how did Avraham have Yishmoel because he had a father Terach? And how did Yitzchok have Esau because he had a grandfather, great grandfather Terach? So it's a gene in you. And in, in Kabbalah they talk about the Birur, about clearing out the genetics, pushing the recessive genes out completely so they don't exist. They, uh, when the Jewish people went out from Egypt, there was an Erev Rav that went out with them. whole mixture of people, and they, we all were, they all got swallowed into the Jewish people somehow over the ages. So a lot of what you see in the Jewish people today is that those are the genetics. That's part of the hesitation that exists 
regarding conversions. You know, we say mass conversions, right? You know, we got 300,000 non-Jewish Russians here in the country, you know, put them all into Teddy Stadium and we'll do it one, two, three and get it over with. Because they fight in the army, they're good guys, they're fine people, and they came here, and they speak Hebrew. So let's do it. But Jewish people have different sensitivities. Have a different different history, and therefore you have to be careful, and you have to be exact. There's no such thing as mass conversions. There's conversions of individual people uh, that are zocher to come under the shechina. And therefore, you have this. Uh, Wariness, so to speak, about yichus. I mean, today it's stretched beyond, uh, you know, like uh, what color tablecloth did they use or something. Right? That's, that's not, that has nothing to do with the Talmud. That's just, it's, it's almost absurd. Now, let's see the other side of the coin after we made this point. The other side of the coin, uh, Omar David Lifna Kodesh Borchu. David Amelech says to God, again, the Medrash puts it into David's mouth, puts this conversation in order to make the point. Ademosai they still say about me that I'm apostle because he came from Rus. And the, in the Torah it says, Lo yovo Ammonium from someone from these two tribes, from Ammon and Moav, was not allowed to convert. So the, the Shmuel and his Bezdin were the ones that made the halacha that they said, Ammoni velo Ammonis. Moavi velo moavis. The males are not allowed. But that the females, the conversion is legitimate. So Rus is therefore a legitimate convert. And she becomes the wife of Boaz. And their great-grandson is David. But everybody in the street says he's possible. Because he comes from a Moabite woman. They don't care what the rabbis say that what. Amoni below Amoni. You know, the rabbis, they can do what they want, right? But we know better. So David says, how long do I have to take this? That they say that I'm apostle, that I'm of no value. If you'll think about it, it's a very fluky story. Boaz is in his 80s. She's a young woman. She's a Gioras. You know, Boaz is the head of the Sanhedrin. I mean, it would be the lead story in Yediot. Fluky story. And they say also that what? That I'm not worthy not only not to be the king, I'm not worthy to be a Jew. I'm not legitimate. So I say to you, God, listen to him. 
Afatem, I say to them, Lo bosem mishteyachios. Didn't Yaakov marry two sisters? How did he do that? The af Tomor, Shalokho Yehuda, and how about the story of Yehuda and Tomor? Right, so that's not the first thing the Shatchan would tell, right? This story. So he says, if I'm possible, then everybody's possible. That's what he's saying. And in effect, what he's saying is that there is no family. That if you dig in long and hard enough, you're not going to find something. So therefore, leave it alone. Don't stir up, you know, don't pick up all the rocks. Because you never know what snake you're going to find under it. Now, in Jewish history, there are all sorts of crazy stories that exist. But for instance, among the Iranian Jews, there was a town, Meshed, uh, that existed in Iran, that 300 years ago, the uh, Muslim rulers forced the Jews in the town to convert. But they did not convert to Islam sincerely. And uh, they remained as Jews, and then the decree fell off. But amongst the many, many Iranians, even until today, they won't marry anybody that came from that town. And that's hundreds of years ago. Or in Poland, there was a story of a woman whose husband was away for many years and somehow she became pregnant. And she said, they Deus ex machina, the God did it, right? Came from God. An angel came, a, a shed, a spirit, right? And, you know, in the small Polish town, so, uh, you know, a lot of these stories went over. So there also, for hundreds of years, nobody would marry anybody from the town. Because maybe they got mixed up into that story. So Bedovid said, you know, if you want to start with me, I'll start with you, right? So how did Yaakov marry Rachel and Leah? And how did Yehuda marry Toma, right? You're worried about Boaz and Ruth, so let's go back. And then the Gemara says, even further, the Medrash says, Avram Avinu, Avram Omar, after the Akedah, so the Medrash says, Avram Avinu said, I have to marry off Yitzchak. So he calls in Eliezer, and he sends him to Padan Aram. But the Medrash says, before he sent him to Padan Aram, Omar, he said to Rabboni Shalom, Asienu mibnos oner eshkol amamre. I got women here. The oner eshkol amamre are my uh, friends. They're my converts. They're my students. They're holy and good people. They have daughters. I'll marry them off to my daughter. I'll marry Yitzchak off to their daughter. Why do I have to go somewhere else? Shehain Sitkonios, the Medrash says. They were pious women. Afalpi Shehainon Miuchosos. But they had no Yichas. Whereas Rivka had Yichas because she came from Avram Avinu's family. She came from Nochor. So Avram says to God... What do I care about Yuxin for? I, why, you know, you see this wonderful girl here? She's perfect. 
So Avram Avinu is willing, uh, so God has to tell him, you know, you, you, the God doesn't deny what he says. God says, oh, we just got news that Rivka was born. Rivka is the one for you. That's the the one that's bashert for him. Yolda Milka Gamhi Bonim Lenochar Achicha, right? Rivka Achosim. Rivka, the sister, also was born. So here you have the other side of the coin, right? We look at the person. We don't look at the yichus. Navram says, what do I care about the yichus? Let's see what the person is. So here again, you have two opposites. Again, what's the reconciliation here? Who's best for the family? Who will build the family here? Who will make the family whole? Who will see to it that the family will exist? So we see from all of this that the Talmud held that family was a role model. And family is the source of all education. That's the idea that the, the article we read before. If there's no family, there's no education. So you send them to school, school is not the best place for education. Chazal say, Shinanton uh, Parents should teach their children. That's the way it's supposed to be. And family is also purpose and future. The family uh, is the, the entire uh, vista of life and of immortality. So we have seen, I hope, that family is this cardinal principle, this overriding value in Jewish life. It defines us as a people, and it gives us an ability uh, to survive over all odds because the strength of the home and the strength of the, of the family is truly the strength of all of Israel. I want to thank you for coming tonight. This JM in the AMRA Barrel Wine, his uh, series on Jewish values, and in this case, his lecture on family here at JM in the AM. Information about it by Barrel Wine's lectures, it's one 800 499 W E I N 1-800-499-W-E-I-N-W-E-I-N-Or-Online, uh, Rabbi Wine.com, Rabbi W-E-I-N.com. on this Tuesday, coming up at the top of the hour, Tehillim Session, organized by the OU, co-sponsored by the uh, National Council of Young Israel, RCA, and Yeshiva University. A worldwide Tehillim session uh, starts at 8 o'clock Eastern Time this morning. We'll carry it right here at JM in the AM. So make sure to be tuned in and participate. Yesterday was a rally day, a day where we encouraged and hopefully inspired people to come out and uh, join the big demonstration in New York City. Today is Tehillim Day, where we encourage people to participate with us in the recitation of Psalms and uh, to participate in this very important aspect for the uh, safety and security of our brothers and sisters in Israel. Beseeching publicly and together, collectively, the one above for his uh, for his help and divine providence. Tomorrow starts the uh, the big ride to the greatest to the world's greatest finish line, as they put it. Tomorrow starts two days 
of supporting kids with cancer and other illnesses uh, during a span of 180 miles throughout the mountains of New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and New York to give over 400 kids the summer of a lifetime at Camp Simcha. You know what tomorrow is. Tomorrow is day one of the two-day bike for Chai. According to the statistics that we are looking at right now, Bike for Chai in the summer of 2014 has already raised close, very close, to $3.7 million. It looks like they're a few contributions away from exceeding $3.7 million. Now, last week, we mentioned, um, would it be possible, is it conceivable, that this ride, this two-day ride, which concludes Thursday at the world's greatest finish line at Camp Simcha, is it possible that this two-day ride could exceed $4 million for Camp Simcha? And today I will say <laughs> that at 3.7, or just under 3.7, with a couple of days left, and the way that these incredible riders have been fundraising in 2014 and knowing how they've done it in previous years, I believe that $4 million in the Bike for Chai race is possible, which is just unbelievable. So they're just under $3.7 million right now. If you want to help out in any way, you can go to the Chai Lifeline website. You can go to just search Bike for Chai with the number 4. It'll show up, and you'll have an opportunity to help out. And it's an amazing cause. The whole race, the whole concept is pretty remarkable. And congratulations to all the riders. I think we're expecting good weather tomorrow. They're talking about mostly sunny and 82. I don't know if the riders consider that good. They may want it actually a little wet and cooler. But uh, I guess if the weather is glorious, like it likely will be, then, then there's certain advantages. There's certain positive aspects to it. So get ready for what will hopefully be a great day tomorrow and uh, get ready to enjoy a uh, fantastic ride up to Camp Simcoe. We'll be rooting for everybody on Wednesday and Thursday. It's a two-day ride. It leaves tomorrow morning. Maybe we can get an update from the starting line tomorrow morning. See if we can work that out. Anyways, so um, good luck, everybody. And Camp Simcoe, get ready for the world's greatest finish line on Thursday afternoon. If you see the videos, those who have seen the videos and those who have been up there, you know it's an incredible and exhilarating experience. Jam in the AM, I want to remind everybody that our very own Naomi Nachman, who does such an amazing show every Friday morning for us at the Nachum Siegel Network, she is doing this whole series of nine days culinary recipes and tips. She's back from her trip to Australia. And uh, she continues at Gourmet Glot in Cedarhurst on Spruce Street in Cedarhurst every day this week with the dairy and parv soups and salads and entrees and desserts, a whole bunch of different things uh, from different countries. The Aussie Gourmet is out it, is at it uh, on an exciting four-day international culinary tour. Day two is today. She'll be at Gourmet Glot on Spruce Street in Cedarhurst starting at 1 o'clock today. So good luck, Naomi, with that.
I'm sure you'll be spectacular. Want to remind everybody that Yeshiva and Masifta Tarvadas has a, a session of Divrei Chizuk for our troubling times, or of Shalom Kamenetsky of Philadelphia and Harav Elia Brudny of the Yeshiva Mir in Brooklyn. We'll speak tonight at Torah Vadas in the main base Medrash beginning at 8 p.m. For information, 718-941-8000, 718-941-8000. And last night I had the privilege of being at the world premiere of the documentary entitled In One Split Second, commemorating 70 years since the destruction of Hungarian Jewry. And um, this is so appropriate. I mean, it's appropriate. It's appropriate at any time of the year, uh, at any point, to learn about Jewish history. Uh, but for the nine days especially, what an important uh, historical look at such an important um, and fast episode in Jewish history. Tonight, it'll be shown at Varetsky Hall on Avenue L in Brooklyn starting at 7.30. Tomorrow, up at Monticello High School at 3 p.m. for teens and at 7.30 p.m. for adults. And then Sunday in Farakaway at the White Shul on Sunday night. Information about all of this, projectwitness.org, or you could dial 718-WITNESS. Again, that's 718-WITNESS for all the information. Rabbi David Goldwasser's words, Here is Rabbi David Goldwasser with Morning Chizuk. Good morning. The great Goyen Rav Shalom points out that the plague of our generation is the absence of any time for self-introspection and reflection. The Talmud tells us in Brachos, If a person sees that he's afflicted with suffering, he should examine his deeds. The question is asked, why does one wait until he has Yisurim and he's in pain? Isn't the individual required to review his deeds on a daily basis? It's explained that people become absorbed in their world and don't free up any time for this self-examination. It's only when the person is in distress that he recognizes his failure to do so. The Talmud continues that if he can't find anything improper in his deeds, he should attribute his problem to his neglect of Torah study. The Vilna points out that Bittel Torah, or the neglect of Torah study, is one of the worst sins. How could we say that he searched his deeds and didn't find anything? His misdeed was his lack of Torah study. The Goin answers very simply, that the reason the person could not find his Avera is because he didn't learn Torah sufficiently. If he would have learned more, he could better appreciate and be more aware of what his shortcomings are. Today there are many circumstances and situations that constantly distract us and rob us of our time. They have become so habitual and such a large part of our lives for instance, cell phones and messaging, computers, that we no longer discern their deleterious effect. These are activities that remove any possibility of quiet contemplation or self-reflection from our thought process. More than a hundred years ago, a man living in Poland worked as the chief bookkeeper for one of the aristocrats in the city. He was a loyal worker, but his practice was never to go into work during Cholomoy Pesach. A financial crisis arose. The Yid was summoned to come to the aristocrat's mansion early the next morning. 
This person knew that his livelihood depended on his positive response. He spent the entire day of Cholomoyed feverishly poring over the books to resolve the boss's problem. His concentration was totally focused. The thoughts of Kedusha Samoyed had faded into oblivion. Finally satisfied that the finances were in perfect order, he presented his findings to his boss. The aristocrat was so delighted that he pulled out a bottle of whiskey to share with him. The Yid gratefully accepted the shot of whiskey. Without thinking for a moment, he began to drink. As soon as it started sliding down his throat, he realized that it was the holiday of Pesach and that whiskey is Chometz Gomer. He could not believe the extent of his carelessness. He had never had any Chometz in his possession over Pesach. Now he had actually partaken of real Chometz. Totally dejected and disconsolate, he went to the Belzer Rebbe, the Sar Sholem. The Sar Sholem told him the tshuva that he should do and suggested that he move to Eretz Yisrael. We find that the Yitzhahara's most powerful tool is to create a diversion that causes one to digress from concentrating on the purpose of man's existence in this world. This has been Rabbi David Goldwasser bringing you morning chizit. May we hear Basura's Tavos about all of Klal Yisrael. Amen. Thank you, Rabbi Goldwasser. I apologize that we seem to have some signal bleeding in there to uh, <laughs> our audio, and I'm sorry about that. Rabbi Goldwasser's words about the current situation, very important, and I thank him for that. And, of course, coming up at 8 o'clock this morning here at JM and the AM, we will carry live, and we encourage everybody out there to participate with us. The uh, Tehillim service that uh, the Orthodox Union has organized uh, with the co-sponsorship of uh, the National Council of Young Israel, the RCA, Yeshiva University, it's happening at 8 o'clock this morning. We will carry it live, so if you're not calling into it or if you're not participating by you know, simply reciting Tillam on your own, both good options, um, you'll have an opportunity to participate with us. We'll carry it for you, and you'll be able to uh, participate with us in that very uh, meaningful endeavor and important endeavor. This audience knows the importance of both demonstrating and being on the streets of Manhattan like we were yesterday, and, of course, the importance of prayer. And uh, we're able to encourage everybody to do both, thank God. Rabbi Beryl Wine's uh, series of lectures on Jewish history and uh, much more are the basic programming element of JM and the AM during the nine days. It's been like that for a long time, and uh, we are now proud to present from the series entitled Builders of the Holy Land, Rabbi Beryl Wine's lecture on Rabbi Shmuel Salant here at JM in the AM. This lecture concerns itself with one of the uh, most fascinating personalities of the 19th and early 20th centuries, but a person who's very little known in the modern Jewish world, and that's Rabbi Shmuel Salant. Rabbi Shmuel Salant was the rabbi of Jerusalem for 70 years, from 1839 to 1909. He died, uh, he was in his, uh, well in his 90s when he died, 
and he is a person that had uh, a tremendous influence on the land of Israel and on the Jewish people generally. And he was a very fascinating personality. Anybody that can survive 70 years as being a rabbi uh, for that alone deserves a lecture. And anybody that can survive 70 years being the rabbi in Jerusalem deserves a double lecture. So we're going to have two lectures on Rabbi Salant. He was born in 1816 in a small village, Vilkenik, near Bialystok. And his father was a well-known rabbi, but his father died when he was a very young child, six or seven. And therefore, he was really raised uh, without parents. And in general, we'll see that his life had uh, a great deal of shadow to it wasn't all, uh, uh, it certainly wasn't easy. Now, he, uh, we, I've discussed with you that some of the personages that we have discussed here are people who had enormously uh, gifted minds and at an early age appeared to, their genius appeared. Others uh didn't develop till later. He was, uh, however, such a genius that by the time he was four years old, he he was well known already for Talmudic erudition at the age of four. He was an uh, he was a raving genius. I mean, he, there was nobody that was uh, his equal in those terms. But again, it'll be fascinating to know that his reputation was not made in scholarship as much as it was made in communal leadership. He was, uh, as I mentioned, uh, he became orphaned when he was very young, and he was there was nobody to take care of him. So when he was, there was a custom among Jews in Eastern Europe and Lithuania that uh, homeless children or orphaned children or children that had no one to take care of them automatically became the ward of the rabbi. And if the child was gifted, so then they sent him to great rabbis. And that it was a, a compact, so to speak, something that was understood that the rabbi would take him in and, uh, and help raise him. Again, in our society, it's hard to, uh, to imagine that type of situation, but it was very common in Eastern Europe in the 19th centuries. And since in the 19th century, uh, Jewish life in Eastern Europe was very, very depressing. It was very sad. Uh, epidemics, malnutrition, pogroms, uh, life expectancy was, uh, Jewish life expectancy was in the 40s. So because of all of that, uh, one can imagine that these cases were not rare. When he was seven, he came to Vilna. And in Vilna, there was a famous rabbi, Rabbi Avale Pasveler, he was known. He was one of the great uh, geniuses, a uh, Talmud of the Gaon of Vilna, uh, a uh, colleague of Reb Chaim Valozhener, uh, one of the great Lithuanian figures of his time. And he uh, took care of this young child, even though Reb Abele himself was in advanced years. He was in his 80s. He was taking care of a seven-year-old child. That's not something that is easy to do. Uh... Children, God ordained that children uh, should be taken care of people when they are still young. 
when people become older, it's much harder to deal with children. It requires an element not just of patience, but even of physical strength that is not that's not present any longer. I remember that I was once in the house of a famous Rosh Yeshiva uh, who uh, had married a woman that was much, much younger than he was, almost 30 years younger than he was. And he was, when I was there, he was already in his 60s, and they had the three- or four-year-old son. And they, I was in the study talking with the Rosh Yeshiva, and the kid came in bouncing a ball, you know, bounced the ball all over the room and everything, and he looked at me like he said, you know, like, what am I supposed to do about this now, right? I'm, I'm 65 years old. What am I supposed to do about it? Well, there is a... Uh, it's a remarkable uh, vignette here that for two years he was raised in the house of Avila Pasviller, who studied with him. And uh, Reb Shmuel Salant said in later years when he was asked uh, to what he attributed his great longevity to live uh, in well into the 90s, so he said because Reb Avila gave him a blessing. Reb Avila blessed him that he would live a long time. And there's a, the legend about it is that Rabavala blessed him if the kid wouldn't annoy him, he told, you know, I mean, that's the, the other side of the coin, right? That if he, uh, because he was a, was a genius, and geniuses have within themselves a certain amount of mischievousness uh, that goes hand in hand. After two years, he moved to the city of Kaidan. Kaidan was also one of these famous little villages, cities in Lithuania that had a tradition of great rabbis, great rabbinic scholars. And uh, therefore, the city, even though it was uh, small in number and poor in economy, and it, there, there wasn't any reason inherent that the city should have greatness to it, but it was well known because of the fact that it had a, it had had over the centuries a string of very famous rabbinic uh, figures who had served as rabbi in that town. When uh, he came there in the year 1825, so the rabbi of Kedan was Rabbi Avraham Shimon Traub, who was uh, also a colleague and a student of Reb Chaim Valozhener. The Valozhener yeshiva had just then opened, and uh, Reb Chaim Valozhener, who was the disciple, the main disciple of the Gaon of Vilna, uh, had a cadre of students uh, that were rabbis in Lithuania who helped him in the founding of the yeshiva in Valozhin. And Rabbi Avram Shimon Traub was one of them. He stayed in Kedan for approximately six years. And when he was 14, he married, and he married the daughter of the rabbi of Kaidan. Now, marrying at 14 was accepted practice in Jewish Lithuania in the early 19th century. And then Nitzima Valozhin married at 14. Uh, it was a combination of many things, a very uh, short life expectancy, uh, uh, maturing very early, uh, combination of a lot of and the social climate and in the non-jewish world also early marriages were extremely common in the polish and lithuanian peasantry later on in the yeshiva world in the late 1800s and in the 1900s yeshiva students got married late 
because of the fact that they wanted to continue their studies, etc. So the age was postponed till the late 20s or sometimes even th early 30s. But at this period of time, uh, almost universally in the Jewish world, certainly in the Hasidic world and even in the uh, world of Lithuanian Jewry, uh, marriages were uh, in the adolescent years. So he became the son-in-law of the rabbi of Kaidan, and he, uh, it was like accepted that he would eventually become the rabbi of Kaidan because he was the rabbi's son-in-law and he was one of the great geniuses. He was an Ilui. And, uh, so in the natural course of events, he would become the rabbi. However, the marriage was a very unhappy marriage. And after a number of years, they, he divorced his wife. And they just could not, uh, they could not come to any, uh, any modus vivendi in their home. And uh, he divorced his wife, so he had to leave Kaidan. And he moved to the village of Salant, where he acquires this last name, Rabbi Shmuel Salant. In Lithuania, at least, it was very common to be called on the name of the town. There were no last names per se in the Jewish world yet. And the Tsar would not order the Jews to have last names for another 40 years. And therefore, uh, the name uh, Salant only uh, meant that he came from this village of Salant. Now, Salant was, again, one of these... Uh, Villages that God created, uh, it had no, it's one of the most famous names in the Jewish world today because of three people who came, who lived in Salant at the same time and whose lives were inextricably bound one to another. First, and I'll talk, uh, God willing, about all three of them, uh, Rabbi Zundel of Salant, Rabbi Yisrael Salant, and Rabbi Shmuel Salant. And because of that, they are the ones that made the village immortal. Even though the village itself is, uh, in Yiddish, used to say, as big as a yawn, right? That has no, uh, that has nothing to recommend it as being a place of importance. In Salant, the rabbi of Salant was a man called Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude. And Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude, they, uh, his nickname was Rabbi Hirschel Tesvis because he used to study Tosfus. He had the, the analytic ability to take the most difficult sections of the Talmud and of the commentaries of the Talmud and analyze it, break it down, break it down, break it down, break it down to the end, so that one saw the entire, uh, all the fibers that went to make the entire cloth. And this analytic method would become very popular later. It became the method in the Lithuanian yeshivas. Reb uh, Chaim Soloveitchik would popularize it in Valozhin. So he was like the forerunner of it. He was like the pioneer. Even though, in essence, if we look back at it, this really was the method of study of the Gon of Vilna, Reb Chaim Valozhiner, etc., of intensive analytic study uh, that delved into the matter itself and removed all extraneous comparisons. Uh, that I don't want to be misunderstood, but uh, if uh, the problem with Pilpul is that you don't see, 
the trees for the forest. And the problem, right, you don't see the individual case because you got the whole forest that's, that's just flying about you. And they went to the other extreme, that there was no forest, there was only the tree. Uh, naturally, as in everything else, there is a happy medium somewhere. But he was a very, very famous Rav, and a brilliant young man came to study. He didn't have a yeshiva per se, but they came to study with him, and he always had a cadre of 10, 15, 20 young men who came to study with him. So after his divorce, Rabbi Shmuel left Kaidan, and he went to Salant in order to uh, study with Rabbi Tzvi Hirschbreude. And three years, Breuder said that he had a seven-tiered candelabra. He had seven great students. So the three that I mentioned, Reb Zundel, Reb Yisrael, and Reb Shmuel Salant were three. Reb Itzel was four. And Reb Alexander Meisha Lapidus, who later was a Roman Raisan, was five. He had seven great students. And they were all there at one time. So it was, uh, in modern-day terminology, we would say it was probably the greatest think tank that Lithuanian Jewry had in Torah in one place at one time. And they all were geniuses, and they all had tremendous ability to study. So they made a compact. They studied 20 out of 24 hours. And uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, the founder of the Musa movement, and Reb Shmuel of Salant were Chevrusas. They learned together. They were the pair that learned together. And Reb Zundel, who was older than they were, uh, was uh, uh, like, well, what shall I say? He was the Mashgiach. He influenced them. He, uh, he was like their mentor. They were younger, and he was their mentor. Uh, Reb Zundel was a person that was a businessman. He had a small business. But his business was not business. His business was Torah. His business, uh, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter described him as a ladder whose base is on earth and whose heaven and whose head reaches the heavens. So that even though it looked like he was in business, his, he really was in God's business. And he was the strongest single influence on both of them, on Rabbi Yisrael Salanter because he is the one that encouraged Rabbi Yisrael Salanter in the study of Musr and later in the development of the Musr movement. And he was the strongest influence on Rabbi Shmuel Salant because we will see that he became his father-in-law. That Rabbi Shmuel Salant married Rabbi Zundel's daughter. And uh, the uh, poverty in the house... Uh, was not to be believed uh, when uh, when uh, well, I'm getting ahead of the story, but the vignette is important. Montefiore became a very good friend of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. So Montefiore, who came in a golden carriage and white, white horses, and who uh, who lived in Forche, and you know, and was uh, you know, he had. Uh, so when he came to see Reb Shmuel Salant in Yerushalayim, so Reb Shmuel Salant lived in the courtyard right next to the Churve Shul. You know, today where the great arch is, they're going to rebuild that shul someday. 
And he lived in one of the hovels, the basements underneath, that there was no window in the house. There was no window in the house. We're not talking about heat or running water. There was no window in the house. And he lived in a two-room hovel, and he had the boxes for furniture. So Montefiore once said to him, doesn't your wife complain? And Shmuel, who had a very good sense of humor, said it's better than what her father had. Right? Like I uplifted her standard of living. Because Reb Zundel and Salant had even less, if that's imaginable. And uh, to a certain extent, their poverty was a badge of honor to them. Because uh, then they, if a person really can do it, then one needs nothing from the world. And then one can look away from the world. It's, uh, in, in our time, it's very, even di it's very difficult even to speak in those terms, but they, but they were able to live in those terms. It really, uh, that, that was not their problem in life. Now, his father-in-law left Salant in 1837 to go to Israel, to go to Jerusalem. He moved to Jerusalem. His father-in-law moved when he was 58 years old, and his father-in-law said that he has years left and that he knows that in heaven they promised him 30 years in Jerusalem. So he's got to go now because he said uh, to go to Jerusalem just to be an old person and not be able to do anything. So he went. You're talking about 1837. Uh, it was not an easy trip. You didn't get on an El Al plane, and you're not there in ten and a half hours, and they don't show any movies, and they don't give you any... Uh, and he food to eat, and uh, the whole thing is just, it was months, and it was danger. But he went, and he established himself in Jerusalem. When he established himself in Jerusalem, he wrote home to his son-in-law and said that you should also come. He wrote him that the holiness of Jerusalem, the atmosphere of Jerusalem is such that one's spiritual development is so enhanced that why should he waste himself in the exile? So he, uh, I mean, he said it as a matter of, of his own uh, experience. So Jerusalem and the land of Israel is, uh, like many other things, it's a litmus test of the person. The greater the person, the more he feels in Jerusalem. The greater the person, the more he feels in the land of Israel. The lesser the person, so, you know, then it's like Buenos Aires, or or it isn't like Buenos Aires, even. But there's nothing to do in town. And the person of Reb Zundel's stature, a person of Reb Zundel's character, so he came to Jerusalem, so he wrote to his son-in-law, he said, like, this is, you know, this is the Garden of Eden, this is paradise. And God, so to speak, is palpable here, you can touch it. The... Uh, Florida would say, come on down, right? That's what he told him to do. But as all sons-in-law, uh, Shmuel was not anxious to, to follow his father's advice, uh, father-in-law's advice initially. And instead, in 1837, he went to the yeshiva in Valozhin. He left Salant, and he went to the great yeshiva in Valozhin, and there he was not treated as a student, but he was treated as a member of the faculty. Even though he still was a very young man, he was only 21 years old. 
but his fame as a scholar and his erudition and his, his good name had gone before him to such an extent uh, that uh, he was treated as a member of the faculty rather than as a student in the yeshiva. J.M. and the A.M., uh, Rabbi Shmuel Salant is Rabbi Beryl Wine's focus this morning during our history lecture here in our nine days format. Just reminding everybody at the top of the hour, three minutes from now, we'll join uh, the OU in Israel and um, participate in the Tehillim rally, the Tehillim session, on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Israel, which will take place at the um, at the OU Center. The gathering is um, being coordinated by the OU, the Rabbinical Council, Yeshiva University, and the National Council of Young Israel. We're proud to be a part of it. We'll join it live coming up at JM in the AM. He stayed there for two years. He perhaps would have stayed the balance of his life, and if he would have stayed there, he would have undoubtedly had a uh, an educational position in Valozhin because of his uh, greatness. But uh, as in all matters, God interferes. God uh, pushes us. And in 1838, he developed a very bad asthma and a touch of tuberculosis. So he went, uh, the doctor uh, told him that he has to go to a warmer climate, that Lithuania would be fatal for him if he stayed in Lithuania. And then the recipe and the prescription in Europe was to go to either Spain or Italy. So Rip Shmuel said, I should go to Spain or Italy. If I have to go to a warmer climate, I'm going to Israel. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. He remembered the letter that his father-in-law sent him. He and his wife then had a two-year-old son, their first child. So upon consultation with her, they agreed that they would leave Lithuania and move to Yerushalayim, move to Jerusalem. It's interesting, the doctor, he himself records it, that the doctor told him that even if he went to Italy, he probably would have no more than five to ten years to live. And he lived, uh, he lived uh, 70 years more. So uh, I knew a Jew in Miami Beach. It's one of, that's a digression, but it's an important story. It's one of the things I remember. I knew a Jew in Miami Beach that uh, in his, uh, when he was 37 years old, had had two heart attacks and a major surgery, major operation for cancer. And the doctors told him that he probably would not live more than two years. And he was a very wealthy man. So he decided that he would move to Florida. And he cashed in all of his uh, assets. And he bought an annuity policy. And the annuity policy promised to pay him for 55 years. And he outlived. He outlived it. I knew it at the end. I'll tell you a remarkable, tell you even a more remarkable story. So he had a big annuity policy, and he was a tremendous Balzdoka. And uh, he had given the Ponovisharov a great deal of money, always over the years. So when he was 92 or 93, so the policy stopped paying. And he was absolutely, except for his Social Security check, he was absolutely destitute. And the Ponovisharov sent him money every month. The 
Pono Vizharov sent them money every month to support it. JM in the AM, Rabbi Beryl Wine is discussing the uh, life of Rabbi Shmuel Salant uh, in the series entitled Builders of the Holy Land, uh, wrapping up our 7 o'clock hour at America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program heard on listeners-sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial and around the world on the web, jmam.org. I think the sound you hear in the background is many people logging on to participate in the OU, the Orthodox Union's Tehillim Gathering, which is about to happen. We're going to carry it live. Tehillim will be recited. Achenu will be recited. The Mishaberach for Tzahal for the IDF will be recited. And we're told that Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu, the chief rabbi of Tzfat, and son of the former chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Mordechai Eliyahu, is going to be saying the Tehillim uh, with the OU in Israel. And uh, this, of course, is going to be joined around the world by so many. You could hear all the different signals in the background, the people checking in from everywhere, getting ready to participate. We're literally going to wait until Rabbi Avi Berman, begins, who's in Israel, uh, begins to speak and begins the presentation. And then uh, at some point, of course, during this segment, Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu will begin with Tehillim, with uh, Achenu, and with the prayer for the IDF, the Mishaberach for Tzahal. That'll be coming up uh, here at JMNAM Live on the air. Tuesday morning broadcast with 65 degrees, mostly sunny weather and a high temperature of 81. A big yashikach to those who came out to yesterday's rally. It's hard to believe that it's one week ago that we were in Israel with the amazing... Honorable group of uh, Olim who moved to Israel with Nefesh Benefesh last week during a very challenging week in the Holy Land. It was just one week ago, and it'll be one week from now where we embark on our next mission to Israel in solidarity with our brethren, a trip that will include a radio show from Stay Road, and we are looking forward to that. And we pray for the safety, security, and peace for our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land during this difficult time. Tomorrow on this program, as is our tradition on the 3rd of Av, we will present my father's eulogy of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which originally took place on the 3rd of Av for the Shloshim of the Rebbe back in 1994, 20 years ago. We'll present it exactly a day from now, 24 hours from now, 8 o'clock in the morning, tomorrow right here at JM in the AM. I hope you'll join us for that. And uh, as soon as the... Uh, as soon as the uh, OU presentation from Israel of Tehillim and um, Achenu and the uh, prayer for the IDF, the Mishaberach for Tzahal, begins, we will hand things over to everybody. Yesterday I said it was a rally day and today is a Tehillim day. I know we should be rallying every day and saying Tehillim every day, but you know what I mean. Yesterday our focus was to inspire people to go to New York City and demonstrate on behalf of Israel. Today it's our mission to uh, inspire people to the point where to collectively and together we can daven, we can pray, we can say Tehillim and um, have our prayers reach the heavens and we'll do it through this venue uh, courtesy of the OU and it's uh, Tehillim rally that will be happening in moments from Israel. Rabbi Shmuel Eliyahu is scheduled to lead the service here coming up. Uh, yesterday I had the um, privilege to be there when the world premiere of the brand new documentary in one split second 
was presented at the Museum of Jewish Heritage. This is a project of Project Witness. And um, the documentary, which of course is appropriate all year round, but especially poignant during the nine days, when we recall even more uh, acutely some of the disasters in the history of the Jewish people. Uh, it's going to be shown tonight at Varetsky Hall on Avenue L in Brooklyn starting at 7.30 p.m. It'll be uh, shown in Monticello at Monticello High School tomorrow, 3 p.m. for teens and 7.30 p.m. for adults. And in Far Rockaway at the White Shul this coming Sunday beginning at 7.30 p.m. Information at 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS, or projectwitness.org, projectwitness.org. We'll go back to our Beryl Wines lecture on Rabbi uh, Shmuel Salant, and as soon as the uh, OU begins its uh, presentation of the Tehillim rally, so to speak, uh, which is being done in this uh, conference from Jerusalem, we'll continue with that and break in right here at JM in the AM. But he always used to tell me, he says, you know, the doctor, he said, if I would have known, he said, I would have bought the annuity for 60 years. I only bought it for 55 but life is strange. It's uh, it's never the way we think it is. So he went to he went to Jerusalem. He took his wife and his son, and he went to Jerusalem. And he arrived there in 1840. On the way to Jerusalem, he went through Damascus. He went through Damascus. What they did is they went south through Russia. They went overland. They went through Turkey, and they went through Syria. It was all part of the... Syria then was not an independent country. It was part of the Ottoman Empire. It was all under Turkey. So he went to the Jewish community in Damascus. So he was Hoshina Rabbo at night. He was in the sukkah of the Chacham, of the Smartic chief rabbi in Damascus, in the sukkah. The night of Hoshina Rabbo. That night, Montefiore, Sir Moses Montefiore was also in Damascus because that was the year of the Damascus blood libel. There was a famous terrible blood libel in which a, a Capuchin priest and his uh, helper were found murdered. And the uh, priest's associates accused the Jews of murdering them in order to take their blood to bake matzahs. And the French consul general in Syria, in Damascus, confirmed it that that's what happened. And the Ottoman Turks arrested five or six of the, fa of the Jewish leaders of Damascus and under indescribable torture uh, extracted confessions that Jews used blood for Passover and that that's probably what happened, that these people were killed. And they did so, never they confessed because of the torture that they were subjected to. Montefiore traveled from London to Damascus to defend the matter and to release the prisoners. And he went to the Sultan of Turkey. He had the protection of Queen Victoria and of uh, Lord Palmerston uh, and of others and, and the, of the British uh, Empire. And therefore, he was a personage to be reckoned with. And he was able to successfully defend the Jews from the, uh, regarding that blood libel. In fact, the Sultan then issued the, uh, 
like an official order that never again in the Turkish Empire would such a thing be allowed, such a blood libel, and anyone that says that about Jews will automatically uh, be punished. And he obtained the release of those people. So Montefiore was there in Damascus at the same time that Rabbi Shmuel Salant was in Damascus. And they met in the sukkah, the night of Ashina Rabba, in the sukkah of the chief rabbi of Damascus. Now Montefiore was a very great Jew, but he was a completely uh, unlettered, uh, simple Jew in terms of Jewish knowledge. He didn't know the difference between uh, between something that was a commandment from the Torah, what was a custom, etc. So he knew from his youth that there was a custom that on the night of a Shina Rabbah, certain Jews stayed up all night. He was exhausted. He was exhausted from his efforts, etc., he came to the sukkah, and he uh, and he he felt his his exhaust his exhaustion overwhelming him. Nevertheless, he thought that staying up the night of a shinaraba is equal to blowing shofar, or having an esrig, or eating in the sukkah, whatever. So he asked the chief rabbi uh, what he should do. So the chief rabbi of Damascus, the smarty chief rabbi, said, "Well, you're." You know, you're from Europe, ask the European rabbi. So he asked Rabbi Shmuel Salant, and Rabbi Shmuel Salant uh, naturally found a way, uh, most rabbis find a way to put people to sleep, and they found a way that he would be able to uh, to sleep, and he was appreciative of it, and they became friends. And we'll see that from this chance meeting, many great things happened. Uh, in fact, uh, I mean, again, as how God does things, the development of the Jewish city of Jerusalem is based on this chance meeting in the sukkah, the night of Ashina Rabbah in Damascus in 1840. When he finally arrived in Jerusalem, what he did is they went overland to Beirut. Okay, I believe we have Rabbi Avi Berman, Rabbi Avi Berman uh, live from Jerusalem here at JM in the AM. Council of, uh, young Israel and of course the uh, uh, OU uh, worldwide and the Israel Shem we're going to be uh, saying three Pratim of Tehillim we're going to be saying Kuf Kuf Aleph, we're going to be saying Kuf Lamed and then the Rav is going to be saying a special uh, melody that uh, is a Masaurus from the uh, literally the uh, fighters of uh, uh, David HaMelech's uh, fighters in the uh, wars of David HaMelech I also want to thank the Rabbinical Council of America, as well as uh, literally all the OU people around the world that are on this. After we finish the three Pirkei Tehillim, we're going to say Mishabech L'chaylei Tzahal, as well as Achenu, all of us together. And uh, we went through a rough day yesterday. It was not easy. We lost ten boys, and uh, unfortunately others injured from uh, missiles. We thank uh, Nachum Siegel for putting this live on uh, JM and the AM. And uh, we look up to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and we ask HaKadosh Baruch Hu to please, please accept this tefillah, showing the actus of the different organizations, showing all of us together, showing that we all have the same goal in mind, and that is the safety of Kali Yisrael and the prosperity of Kali Yisrael. May we uh, be able to build base HaMikdash and uh, all be there together. And Bezrat Hashem see tremendous atlacha. We're going to ask Rav Shmuel Eliyahu, the chief rabbi of Tzfat, that uh, participated together with the OU Solidarity, Solidarity Mission, just literally uh, two days ago in Sterot for Shabbos, we had an unbelievable uh, Shabbos there together with uh, about 500 soldiers and 250 uh, 
yeshiva boys and the OU mission, which was about 50 people, all dancing together, literally soldiers walking out of Gaza, walking into base measures, dancing with us. And uh, out of that ruach, we're asking Rav Shmuel Eliyahu to please uh, start with us. We're going to start with Kuf Kuf Aleph. Vakasha Kvodarav.
אנחנו מתפללים שהקדוש ברוך הוא ישמור על כל חיילי צבא הגנה לישראל, שיחזיר אותם לביתם בריאים ושלמים. אמן. עכשיו מי שברך לחיילי צה"ל הרב? כן. מי שברך אבותינו הקדושים והטהורים, אברהם, יצחק ויעקב, משה ואהרון, דוד ושלמה, הוא ישלח מחר הצלחה לכל חיילי צבא הגנה לישראל. אמן. העומדים על משמר ארצנו וערי אלוהינו, מן הלבנון ועל גבול מצרים, ומן הים הגדול אל לבוא הערבה, ביבשה, באוויר ובים. ניתן את בני תועבינו קמים עלינו ניגפים לפניהם תמיד. הקדוש ברוך הוא ישמרם את זה מכל צרה וצוכה, מכל נגע ומחלה. וישלח ברכה והצלחה בכל מעשה ידיהם. ידבר ושונאנו תחתיהם תמיד. ויעטרם בכתר ישועה ובטרת ניצחון תמיד. ובכל אשר יפנו, ישכילו ויצליחו. ויקוים בהם מקרא שכתוב כי אדוני אלוהיכם ההולך עמכם. Amen. Thank you very much for the Rav Eliyahu, Chief Rabbi of Tzfat. And uh, uh, we're going to end now with all of us saying Acheinu Kol Beit Yisrael from wherever we are around the world. And again, tremendous thanks to uh, the different organizations, the Rabbinical Council of America, Yeshiva University, the National Council of Young Israel, Nachum Siegel and JM and the AM, and of course my uh, dear colleagues at the OU, Uh, whether it's OU Israel or OU America, whether it's Kashrus or the uh, other programs, NTSY, etc. Thank you all, and Be'ezer Hashem HaKadosh Baruch is looking at this in a tremendous, beautiful way, and uh, we'll bring tremendous atzlacha to all of our soldiers, and uh, we should uh, hear only positive news from them. Acheinu, Chobet Yisrael, Anetunim, Batzara Ubashivya, Haumdim ben Bayamu ben Bayabasha, Hamakom Yerachem Alehem, Viyotiyei Mitzara Leuvacha, Umeafela Leura, Umishiabud Ligula, Amen. My thanks to Rabbi Avi Berman and my thanks to everybody at the uh, OU. That was a very special segment. I know that the, uh, the, uh, the, the in and out beeps of a conference call sometimes could be disturbing. Even, even during a regular conference call, they could be disturbing. <laughs> um, but uh, thank God, I think everybody, especially based on the reaction we're already getting from around the world, it's uh, obvious that people appreciate the fact that we aired that live as it was happening. Uh, Rabbi Berman, uh, Rabbi Eliyahu from Israel, uh, recitation of Tehillim, uh, Achenu, um, together praying for the IDF, praying for our brothers and sisters in Israel, something that we encourage around the world. We uh, Yesterday we uh, dedicated to encouraging people to attend rallies and demonstrations. Today, in addition to that, we encourage people to uh, say Tehillim and to do whatever possible to... Um, to beseech the one above for the safety and security of our brothers and sisters in the Holy Land. Tuesday morning broadcast, JM and the AM. Reminder tonight at the uh, Yeshiva Masifta Tarvadas, Divrei Chizuk for our troubling times. Rav Shalom Kamenetsky and Rav Elia Brudny will be speaking starting at 8 p.m. in the main base Medrash. Information at 718-941-8000, 718-941-8000. We'll continue with our... Uh, Lectures from Rabbi Beryl Wine coming up. That is the bulk of our nine days format. And I remind you that my father's historic eulogy, Hespit of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, from 20 years ago tomorrow, we played tomorrow at 8 a.m. right here at JM in the a.m. We head to Israel next week. It's hard to believe we were there just a week ago on Tuesday with that incredible group with Nefesh Benefesh, the amazing Olim. Uh, we'll be back there, Bezrat Hashem, next week including a visit to stay wrote, um, and uh, obviously all the details if you keep it here at JM and the AM. Um, 
Coming up, we mentioned this uh, yesterday, and uh, today we have the opportunity to speak with the founder of the event. And I want to thank uh, Shlomi Ash and Avrami Jordan and those um, associated with them. They made us aware of this unique conference, which is going to be taking place on the 19th of August, all day long in Mawa, New Jersey, at the Sheraton Mawa. On August the 19th, over 300 insurance Financial and legal professionals are expected at CSB Envision 4. It is the fourth conference. Um, you'll be able to uh, go to the web, thecsbevent.com, thecsbevent.com. And as we mentioned yesterday, the lineup of people that are expected at this event uh, to present is pretty remarkable. And uh, for those of you who think that um, our community can put together Hundreds of people in the area of insurance, financial, and legal uh, professions uh, to come out and really gain from a conference like this. Well, uh, they are proving otherwise, I can tell you that much, at the CSB Envision Number 4. Yoel Yitzchak Bodek is the founder of the CSB Envision event, and he joins us live via telephone. Thank you very much for being here this morning at JM in the AM. Sure. Good morning, Malcolm. Good morning. Tell me about the... Uh, uh, about the history of this event, uh, it goes back uh, obviously uh, a few years. This is now the fourth one. How did this uh, whole thing come to being? Sure, we started back in uh, 2011. We started with a small group of about uh, 70, uh, 70 insurance professionals, and then the following year we grew to about 150, and then last year we had a total of 200. And I'll give you just a little bit of a uh, background how all this came to be, if you will. Uh, personally, I've started out in the life insurance business almost 14 years ago, and uh, I've played many different roles in, in, in that industry, and I've been fortunate to do okay for myself, if you will. Um, I'll just connect a little bit of the dots and give you some more history. Uh, personally, um, we've gotten to know CSB, which I guess a lot of our listeners would wonder what CSB Envision stands for. The CSB stands for Computer Scientists for the Blind. Now, while the full, uh, full conference, as you just mentioned, Nakam, is a very high-end professional event, and we stand by it, and, and that's really what we market, it is important to realize that the conference benefits a wonderful organization by name Computer Scientists for the Blind. And that's an organization that was founded almost 17 years ago to benefit individuals in our community that... Um, face various different physical challenges. And personally, it spoke to me very closely um, as uh, uh, personally, I'm, I'm a wheelchair user. Now, without getting into much of my own personal history, one of the things that I liked a lot about CSB is the fact that they empower the individual to make the best of their challenges and live a life of independence. So CSB provides a, a full line of uh, different technological innovations for those who face different physical challenges, such as ALS, spina bifida, cerebral palsy, and various different visual challenges. That's kind of the background behind it. So, so about four years ago... So it's sort of like an Envision conference that is supporting the cause CSB? Is that one of the ways we could put it? That is correct. Now, um, unlike perhaps uh, other fundraising events, such as a dinner or a Malava Malka, uh, <laughs> there, are no, there is no... Uh, per se, fundraising activity at the event, per se. No journal, huh? <laughs> no journal, that's right. No journal, no fundraising, uh, uh, no special honorees other than our speakers, which uh, which is really the focus of the conference. 
uh, CSP gets about 15 minutes out of a 25-hour schedule on that day. Um, so it is really targeted, specifically focused uh, uh, on what is we deliver, which is a high-end educational conference to folks in the accounting, legal, and insurance uh, practice. Yeah. Let's slow down a minute. Uh, for, so you, you mentioned CSB, which I, I guess we could refer to as the cause, and it's called Computer Sciences for the Blind. And you mentioned the type of people uh, that benefit from it. But what about these services? Give me an example or two of how they help someone who's in a wheelchair or help someone who's visually impaired. Sure, absolutely. So anything from large print, um, for, for those who can't see small print, to uh, printing a chumash or a gemara in braille, um, so that a, a young boy or a yeshiva could keep up with the rest of the class. Um to going and um, pretty much rewriting programming. So individuals who use what's known as an eye-tracking device with ALS that reads their um, eye activity, which is the only activity they can essentially do voluntarily, which is the only way they communicate, they've got to reprogram those devices so they can communicate in Yiddish or in Hebrew. And, and, um, and, and you've seen that in action, by the way. I, mean, I have it, absolutely seen that in action. If, if um, someone, God forbid, has advanced stages of ALS, literally the eyes is, is, is the only thing that works, right, essentially? That is correct. And, in fact, there are close to 30 from people that, that, that who have ALS that oh, currently God. benefit from CSB. And, in a way, it's really their only lifeline, the only way they get to communicate with the outside world. So this is a special computer program. They look at the letters, so to speak, and that's how they, they communicate any message to a family member, a caregiver, to anybody. That is correct, and in fact, they can even email using that device. Oh, God, unbelievable, unbelievable. Oh, gosh, I, I'm saddened to hear how many in our community need it, but my God, it's amazing that uh, that the service and the computer program exists to help people communicate. It must be a lifesaver for so many families. Correct, and at the same time, well, yeah, it is definitely uh, a sad. The fact, though, is that 1300, almost 1,300 individuals in communities throughout the tri-state area, Toronto, London, and other international areas, benefit from from the services provided by CSC. So, and I'll, I'll just mention one story, sure. uh, if I may. Yeah, sure. There's a young kid um, that I personally have gotten to know in, in, in a facility um, in Brooklyn um, who's got uh, different motor challenges where he can where he, he can't use his own ads to, 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 to as much as open a chumash or a sitter. CSB is gone and has programmed a netbook or a small laptop so that this very bright boy, who other than the fact that he's got physical limitations, um, has everything else going for him, is able to sit in yeshiva with the rest of his classmates and keep up with a class, whereas without the special programming, there'd be no way for him to be in a regular, regular right. classroom environment. It's pretty amazing. Yo, Yitzhak Bodek is with us live via telephone. So even without Envision, and we'll talk about the conference in a second, but even without it, we should encourage people to support CSB. I mean, they're doing amazing work in our community. Well, I definitely think so. And one of the things that I'd like to point out is that this is, in fact, the only um, public event, if you will, for the benefit CSB. Uh-huh. CSB's got different parliament meetings throughout the year, but there is no dinner or other um, PR campaign, if you will, in the community. Understood. All right, so, it, 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 I don't know, three, four years ago, I guess you and the, and the founders of the event, you know, have this vision for Envision, for the CSB Envision event. Uh, why did it work? Why are we at a point now where you're in the hundreds of participants this time around? Sure. 
so we started out, as I said, about three years ago, and it was a nice type of uh, an event. Uh, we did it at the Venetian in Garfield, New Jersey, which is right. a, a pretty nice place mm-hmm. in, in, in our area. Right. We invited folks in the life insurance business, which is my my uh, natural network, because that's the world I live in, at least professionally. Uh, we got about 70 folks to participate. We had a nice dinner. We had Reverend Rietti um, participate in our first year. We invited uh, a well-known speaker that often appears in the industry to, to, to present as well. And based on that feedback, we realized that instead of having just a nice uh, afternoon or dinner, we can really turn it into a full-day conference that will essentially, while we're not naive enough to think that we uh, compete directly with other larger industry events that pull in thousands of people, um, if we, we thought if we can replicate that format and bring speakers that appear at those events, or one in particular known in the industry as the Million Dollar Round Table Meeting or the MDRT Meeting, and uh, design it so where it's tailored to uh, an observant Orvidex clientele mm-hmm. um, and bring the price point down to, to a reasonable uh, registration cost, uh, and at the same time benefit of CSB, we thought it's a one-on-one situation where we would deliver tremendous value to those professionals. At the same time, they would benefit CSB while I'm, growing their own professional knowledge. I don't know if this is the right way to ask this question, but I'm so curious because you might know. Do you have any clue how many people in our community, so to speak, are in the insurance business? Is there even a, you know, do you have an oh, idea? I can't give you an exact figure. I can tell you that our list is about uh, 700 life insurance producers in our community. And one of the things, if I can, I'd like to point out, which I think sure. is, is fascinating and, and really a testament to the level of success of some of those in, in the business, and I guess also is a testament to their professionalism, is if you go to any of the individual uh, company conferences, such as a New York Life or a Guardian or a Mass Mutual or even a, a MetLife, you would find that amongst the top 10 or 15 producers, you would find from uh, life insurance professional in that group. Very it's interesting. Very interesting. I'll tell you. Go figure, huh? <laughs> yeah, well, so, I think it's pretty remarkable because so, that's on a national level. It's not just the top guy in Borough Park or in Muncie or in Lakewood. Yeah, I understand that. The whole country. So mm-hmm. you, so the, so then the conference expanded. You invited other professions, not just the insurance industry. Correct. So last, so going back two years ago, based mm-hmm. on the feedback we got from our first event. We figured we can turn it out to, we can turn it into a full event, which is what we did in 2012. Repeated that again in 2013 and raised the benchmark again. And last year started eyeing, um, what we called related professionals. So we started expanding the programming with the vision, if you will, to invite related professionals such as accountants and attorneys, um, and, uh, PNC brokers who've got an interest in the world of financial planning or wealth management. So in a way, we started laying the ground for that last year. Did that expansion make sense? Like when you went ahead and did it, did it, it all fit together nicely? Well, it definitely does because if you think about it, um, the life insurance agent, per se, if you will, um, many of them who financial are... Financial planning, right? Sorry? Many of them are financial planners, I think you're about to say, right? That's correct. Right. Many of them are pretty sophisticated and pretty savvy right. about what they do. So they don't just talk about life insurance. They really take a look at the full picture. It can be anything from some very basic financial uh, planning concepts, fundamental financial planning concepts, all the way to things that involve business succession planning or estate planning, which, often, which by definition will involve an attorney and an accountant sitting in at those meetings. Right, understood. It's a pretty natural progression. 
Yo, Yitzchak Bodeg is with us. He's founder of the CSB Envision Conference. It happens August 19th, all day long at the Sheraton in Mawa, New Jersey. Um, is there a registration deadline for this event? Well, registration goes essentially all the way till day before the conference. All right, so people... Um, so if people don't know about their exact plans for that week, whether they'll be in town or not, they they have time to decide. Obviously, if they know they're around, we're encouraging they them. Time, to... They have time to decide. The only thing that I would encourage them, obviously, is to sign up as early as they can. Right. Because the conference features about 19 different uh, breakaway sessions or focus sessions, mm. and seating at each session will be limited. All so right. if there's a particular session that you, as an accountant or attorney, want to be part of, it'd be a good idea for you to really take a look at it early on. So literally, when people look at the brochure, they go online to see the information, it's going to be first come, first serve for those sessions. That is correct. All right, so people should keep that in mind. All right, so if you know you're around, folks, and you're in that industry, any of these industries, uh, August 19th in Mawa, New Jersey, uh, it's an all-day-long conference. They call it the CSB Envision 4, and I think now we understand uh, the CSB role in all this, or Envision's role in terms of supporting uh, CSB, and everyone is encouraged to participate. You have a very interesting group of presenters, some of whom I've heard of, some of whom I have not, <laughs> the, the well-known in the world of, uh, of politics and the world of, uh, I don't know, American society I've heard of, but obviously the financial experts uh, I would not have come across. But now, now I understand why Governor Patterson has played an active role. Now I understand why he's appearing via video at the conference. If anybody could appreciate CSB, it's him. That is correct. And I, in fact, I joined, uh, Sam and, and the folks interviewing, uh, Governor Patterson. Uh, that was a pretty remarkable meeting. I can imagine. I mean, my gosh, he must have been thrilled to hear that this whole, uh, organization exists. Well, I think he was. All right. For people in the industry, for professionals who sell insurance, who are involved in financial planning, for attorneys out there, et cetera, all the categories you mentioned, who are some of the people that are going to be at the conference that they may have heard of? Sure. So it, it, I think our, our, our schedule is kind of a who's who in, in the industry. And before we talk about anyone in particular, I think one of the things that I'd like to point out, similarly to what we discussed a minute ago about um, uh, folks in a life insurance business reaching the top echelon of their profession, um, our, our schedule is packed with a lot of um, uh, well-known names in the world of uh uh, of accounting and uh, and um, legal related specifically to the world of financial planning and estate planning issues, okay. such as well-known uh, attorneys Naftali Lushkoy or uh, Joseph Septimus um, or Ira Lipsius. And um, all of those are very well-known in our business. And Naftali Lushkowitz will be joining Rabbi Ari Marbiger, a very well-known individual in the world of halakha and how it relates to various different uh, Topics such as uh, business succession planning, in particular, to our conference this year. In fact, Rabbi Marbiger and Aftali Lushkowitz are coming back for the second, yeah, second time with us. They did a session uh, with us two years ago. Joseph Septim is a very well-known individual in the business of estate planning and uh, wealth management. Will we will be presenting on a topic of uh, New York State estate taxes? And in fact, Joseph was involved in writing the most recent version of the legislation of, of that law. So I think what we bring to the table is really people who have been involved in not only talking about these things, but actually drawing them up and making them part of part of the industry and, and the way we know it today. And we should mention that your participants on that day, and I think even the next day, are going to have access to these people, right? That is correct. 
literally people will be able to get advice that they'd pay, I guess, a lot of money for under normal circumstances. That's correct. The <laughs> yep. And the, the conference features almost four hours of exhibit and networking time. Right. And there will be what we call speakers pavilion where, where you will have the chance to interact with those individuals. Uh, Yoel Yitzchak Bodek is with us live via telephone. CSB uh, Envision Conference number four happens on the 19th of August at the Sheraton in Mawa, New Jersey. Happens all day. Obviously, all the all the uh, essentials for our community, kosher food, etc., is all going to be provided, right? I mean, you're making oh, absolutely without that. So people should remember that uh, information. You can go to the web, thecsbevent.com, uh, thecsbevent.com. Uh, what has the re- I'll let you reveal who it is. What has the reaction been to the keynote speaker that you've invited to participate on the 19th of August? Oh, absolutely. I think it's been pretty interesting. Our keynote speaker is, is going to be Jack Abramoff. And uh, for those for those of us who follow politics pretty closely, definitely we know Jack Abramoff pretty well. We've known about his history other than uh, uh the most recent uh, news about him a couple of years ago, yep. for those who have followed him. But Jack, I think, is a pretty remarkable individual on in the fact that, um, you know, every year at a conference we collect names and ideas of different folks to invite for the following year. Jack's been on my short list for almost a year right now. A couple of months ago I reached out to Jack and see if he'd be available. I also got to read his book and then got to meet him in person in Washington, D.C. while in business a couple of months ago. And I think he's got a pretty remarkable story to share certainly for those who are in politics, but I think those, even those who don't follow politics, I think they'd be pretty impressed with what Jack's got to offer on, on the 19th. All right. Any negative reaction about his checkered past, or basically people understand that he's now this symbol of resilience in American society? You know, not at all. Certainly, I think uh, folks remember his checkered past, but uh, don't uh, those who, who've known Jack from before... Uh, I might know more about him, but I think there's a lot more about Jack and his Sam Ash. Like to say, if you don't, if if you won't become, if you won't be attending the event, then you don't know Jack. Which is, <laughs> which is to say, that there's a lot more to Jack than 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 what's been written up on the front page of the New York Times. Oh boy! If you would have told me that line, I would have told you that Sam Ash thought of it without even uh, <laughs> you identifying who the source was. All right, CSB Envision Four. I assume everything we've discussed, uh, Yoel Yitzchak Bodek, is on the website that we've been telling people about? Absolutely. Go to thecsbevent.com, thecsbevent.com, the full list of um, of, of uh, speakers, uh, those that uh, Yoel Yitzchak mentioned, and of course Jack Abramoff, and, and even those who he has not yet mentioned, you'll find there on the site, and all the information for registration is there as well. There's a fee, obviously, right? People need to know that. There's obviously a fee. As we mentioned, it is a fundraiser for CSB. Anybody who's in the insurance, financial, or legal professions, uh, you will find it to be, from what we're told, after four years, a fascinating experience. Full day, August the 19th at the Sheraton in Mawa, New Jersey. A specific phone number that we should give out, or is the website sufficient? Well, the website is absolutely very informative, and then definitely folks could call 718-513-2208. Again, that's 718-513-2208 to call to register. And not only can I share an email address in case anyone oh. wants to reach out with specific questions. Good idea. Go right ahead. So it's info at thecsbevent.com. Again, that's info at thecsbevent.com. All right, information about the event, if you're, uh, if this applies to you, and from what we've uh, seen 
over the last few years, the uh, base of uh, people in our community that it applies to and that feel it's important for them to be there continues to grow. Uh, you can call 718-513-2208, 718-513-2208. You can go to our website, thecsbevent.com. Use the email address, info at thecsbevent.com. As Yol Yitzchak Bodek said, uh, you have till basically, you know, up until the event to register, but if you want to get in on these sessions, these specific breakaway sessions that uh, specifically appeal directly to you and your industry, that's something you're going to want to take care of immediately because those tend to sell out, especially the uh, really popular ones, the ones that are filled uh, with people from uh, specific industries tend to sell out pretty quickly, so you want to take care of that today. Well, Yoli Yitzchak Bodek, Yashikach, thanks for letting us know about Envision, about the CSB Envision Conference, and for letting us know about the Computer Sciences for the Blind. As you described earlier, a lot of amazing people in our community and their families are benefiting from a wonderful stuck gun. If anybody does want to find out more about that, they could use the same phone number as well. That is correct. Thank you very much, Nagel, for having us today. A pleasure. The conference is the 19th of August. Check out thecsbevent.com. And to the people who are running computer sciences for the blind, because I'm somewhat familiar with people in our community who have ALS, all I could say is, on behalf of their families, thank you. Just amazing. Absolutely amazing. J.M. and A.M. at 19 minutes before 9 o'clock. It's a Tuesday with 65 degrees, mostly sunny, and a high temperature of 81. A couple of notes before we go back to Rabbi Beryl Wine. And uh, I guess take Roy Wine to the top of the hour and to the conclusion of our show. First of all, a reminder that our good friend Naomi Nachman is cooking up a whole bunch of nine days stuff. <laughs> and she continues today at 1 p.m. at Gourmet Glot, uh, Spruce Street in Cedarhurst. If you want to see Naomi, she's back from Australia the Aussie Gourmet does a great job Fridays at 9 a.m. for our network with Table for Two. So you can check the whole thing out uh, at Gourmet Glot this afternoon beginning at 1 p.m. Uh, our Mayor Bracha is collecting items for soldiers in Israel. They've been asked specifically uh, by um, higher-ups in the Israeli Army to coordinate uh, collections for soldiers. Anybody who wants to support the cause... You can go to the website, terror-victims.org.il, terror-victims.org.il. Uh, we've also been asked to give out the regular uh, address, so anybody wants to send a check and support the cause, it's uh, Or Mayor Ubracha, uh, and the uh, address is uh, 455 Viola Road in Spring Valley, New York. 455 Viola Road, Spring Valley, New York, 10977. That's 455 Viola Road, Spring Valley, 10977, for information on that. Got a note from Glenn Richter overnight, a week from today. Reminder, it's Mincha at the Isaiah Wall. Make sure to put it on your calendar for Tisha B'Av afternoon. We'll be here a week from today on Tisha B'Av with Kinnis in the morning. And again, a reminder, Mincha at... Um, Mincha at the Isaiah Wall as is the annual tradition across from the United Nations on 1st Avenue and 43rd Street in New York City. And again, a reminder, uh, I had the um, I had the privilege of uh, seeing the brand-new documentary last night, the world premiere of In One Split Second, commemorating 70 years since the destruction of Hungarian Jury. You know what was scary last night? 
it's 70 years ago. And we know how quickly things work today. The destruction of Hungarian Jury, if you see this documentary, you will see how fast it happened. Not years. It was weeks. It was weeks. And uh, when you think about where we are 70 years later, it's a scary thought. Uh, anyway, tonight they are showing the documentary at Varetsky Hall on Avenue L in Brooklyn starting at 7.30. It's at Monticello tomorrow, a 3 p.m. program for teens, 7.30 p.m. for adults at the Monticello High School, and in Far Rockaway this Sunday at the White Shul. Information 718-WITNESS, 718-WITNESS. We'll close out our program today with more from Rabbi Beryl Wine on the life of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. This comes from the series entitled Builders of the Holy Land. Rabbi Wine's lectures, 1-800-499-WEIN or RabbiWine.com, RabbiWEIN.com. And he found an Ashkenazi community there that numbered 500 people. The Ashkenazi community, whereas the Sephardi community was close to 8,000. And the Ashkenazi community was sadly discriminated against by the Sephardim and by the Arabs. I'll just give you one example. The, uh, it would not be until, uh, it would not be until 1875 that the Ashkenazi community would have permission to have its own shechita, to have its own abattoir to kill animals. And the reason for that was because the Muslims, the Muslims, uh, they don't eat kosher, but the Muslims will not eat meat that is slaughtered by an infidel. Muslims, first of all, only eat from uh, kosher animals. They only eat beef and, uh, and lamb and goats. And uh, they don't eat pork or uh, any of the other things. And they also will not eat meat that is slaughtered by an infidel. A Christian is an infidel. Their definition of infidel was that anybody that is not from the Levant is an infidel. Anybody that's European. And therefore the Ashkenazic Jews were infidels. And that being the case, therefore, they would not give them permission to slaughter. And it took uh, over 30 years of lobbying and of bribes and of all sorts of machinations until finally in the middle 1870s, the Ashkenazic Jews received permission to uh, have their own shechita, to have their own abattoir. Because there are differences in the shechita and in the laws and the ritual between the Ashkenazim and the Svardim. Uh, today in Israel, there's pretty much a unified shechita which meets the requirements of all. But at that time, that was that was not there yet. Now the Arabs, when they allowed the shechita to occur, so the Arabs did something which is a uh, have to understand what it was for Jews to live under the Arabs. We are no, we, especially we who come from Eastern European background, so. We have no appreciation of the discrimination, of the hatred, 
of the uh, of the humiliation which was part of the everyday life of Jews in Arab countries. So when they allowed the uh, Jews to have the Ashkenazim to have their own shechita, they required that before the blessing is made on the shechita and before Yeshech, so you have to make a bracha. Before they made the bracha, the sheikh had to say out loud, Basham Allah Arachman Arachim, which means in the name of the great and holy Allah. Otherwise, he couldn't sheikh. So there were all types of shyness, whether that was permitted. And then the rabbis decided it was permitted. Then the Arabs wanted that it should be said not before the Jew makes the bracha, but before the Jew shechts, so that it would now be an interruption between the bracha of the Jew and the actual shechita. So the Jews always paid bribes to be able to say it before. And we're talking here the 1870s. We're talking 100 years ago. We're not talking uh, Middle Ages. So the uh, the situation with the uh, with the Muslim rulers, with the Arabs generally, has always been a uh, very very difficult one, to put it mildly. So when he came to Yerushalayim, the Sfardim were in control of the Jewish community. The Sfardim had an official rabbi who was called the Chacham Bashi. The Chacham Bashi was an official rabbi who represented the Jewish community to the Turkish authorities. It's the forerunner of the chief rabbi. The Sephardim always had a chief rabbi. Rabbi Cook in the 1920s will introduce the concept of an Ashkenazic chief rabbi. After the Turks, they changed the name of the chief rabbi to Sephardim from Chacham Bashi, which was the Turkish name, to Rishon Letzion, which is the Hebrew name, the first, the, the first of, the, of Zion, meaning the, the, uh, Sephardic chief rabbi, and that's what he's known as today. When he came to Yerushalayim, so they moved in next door to his father-in-law, to Reb Zundel. So I've described to you the palace that he moved into. With two rooms. You can see it today, by the way. It's, it's in the Chotzer. It's on, ex, it's on exhibit. You go all the way down. I mean, I'm personally fascinated by it because my grandfather... Uh, was uh, was yet on the Bezdin of Reb Shmuel Salant in Jerusalem at the turn of the century. And my mother, Allah Shalom, was born in the old city, in Bote Mahse. So when, when I grew up, I always heard in the house, they always spoke about Reb Shmuel Salant like he was, you know, a member of the family, somebody that they had known. So... Reb Shmuel Salant had undertaken, he together with Reb Yisrael Salant had undertaken a vow never to hold an official rabbinic position. When he came to Jerusalem, so they came to him and they said, you're the man, A, you're young, B, you're the greatest scholar, C, you have the organizational ability, and if we don't have a great rabbi, the Ashkenazi community will uh, just deteriorate, it will disappear. So you have to do it. So he made a compromise. He never called himself the rabbi of Jerusalem. But he said he was a morehoroa. A morehoroa means that he answered shyless. He answered questions. Anybody that had a question in halacha, they came to Rav Shmuel Salat. 
So he was like the head of the Beth Din. But he never claimed to be the rabbi. And we'll see during his 70-year reign, he imported many great, four times, he imported great uh, scholars and rabbis from Europe to serve as the official rabbi of Jerusalem. But as long as Rabbi Shmuel Salant was there in the community, even if one had the title of being the official rabbi, no one held him to be the official rabbi over Rabbi Shmuel Salant because of Rabbi Shmuel Salant's erudition and of his greatness, etc. This Churveshul, that's called the Churve Rabbi Yudah The Churve, it was a, it was called the Churve because it was destroyed. The Arabs had destroyed it. Arabs have an old history of destroying synagogues. And he was determined to rebuild it. Now, when he came in 1840, so by 1843 they had plans to rebuild. They were only missing the money, which in Jewish life is always this uh, present, but that's not the main matter. But what happened was that a great dispute broke out now, which is par for the course in Jerusalem. Because the poor people said, if you go on a building fund drive, then nobody's going to have money for us. Because the money that comes from Chutzlars, the money that comes from Europe, is going to be spent on this building, it's going to be spent on the synagogue, and that's the money that we live from. So there was a bitter battle, a bitter dispute. And here was one, here, it is really on this issue that Shmuel Salant, so to speak, cut his teeth that uh, his uh, leadership uh, became uh, became accepted by all because he said that he undertook that there would be no uh, diminution in the funds for the poor and that there would be money to rebuild the building. And in 1848, he left Jerusalem to go on a fundraising drive in Europe, which again... It was unheard of. Uh, there had always been fundraisers who left to raise money, but that the chief of the community should leave to raise money, that was unheard of. But because of the fact that he made this commitment, so he felt that it was incumbent upon him to uh, leave. So in 1848, he left Jerusalem, and he traveled through to Russia, Germany, Holland, and England, and in England, this friend Montefiore made him a parlor meeting. I'll just show you that where the world has not changed in the 140 years. He uh, helped him raise a substantial amount of money. He was a brother-in-law. Montefiore was a brother-in-law of Lord Nathan Rothschild. The Rothschilds gave him a large donation. And when he returned, he returned in triumph because he had raised sufficient funds to rebuild the synagogue Plus, he had more money for the poor than ever was had before. Uh, that itself enhanced his position in the community. In Yiddish, there's a phrase, Dervas hot the meya hot the deya. The one that has the hundred is the one that has the influence also. The one that raises the money, the one that, uh, that shows his ability to be able to uh, finance the project, so he naturally has the most to say about the project. People listen to it. Now, he had founded in 1846 
a small, when he came, there was no school for the Ashkenazic children to learn. They either went to the Sephardic or they learned at home. He founded a school, an elementary school called Yeshivas Eitz Chaim, which is the oldest yeshiva in Jerusalem today. And this school was right next door to the shul in the Churve. So Yeshiva Seitz Chaim, he lived in the basement, and Yeshiva Seitz Chaim was like the top floor of that house. And next door was the, shul, was the shul. And again, uh, in order to support the Yeshiva, that was also part of his fundraising venture. In 1850, by 1850, in other words, four years after the Yeshiva began, he uh, was so successful that it now had 300 students, and he was able to raise the level, so it became a yeshiva gedola as well. J.M. in the A.M. on the uh, life of Rabbi Shmuel Salant. That's, of course, our barrel wine in this uh, series on the builders of the Holy Land. Nine days format here at J.M. in the A.M. My thanks to uh, all of you for tuning in and being part of our program tomorrow. I'll air at uh, 8 o'clock in the morning hour uh, Annual tradition on the 3rd of Av. It was the 3rd of Av 20 years ago on the Shloshim of the Lubavitcher Rebbe that my father delivered a eulogy for the Lubavitcher Rebbe that has uh, since uh, become legendary. And we'll play that tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock, 20 years later, right here at JM and the AM. So make sure to be tuned in for that. And, of course, plenty more. A, a big, big, big Hatzlacharabat, the bike for a high contingent. It's a large contingent. Bike for High leaves early tomorrow morning. Two days. They're up to $3.7 million. And they may hit $4 million by the time that race starts. So get ready, folks, for a great ride up to Camp Simcha and for the best and most amazing, greatest finish line you can imagine. It is pretty amazing. Go to Bike for High. Uh, you can search it online. You can give today and you can be part of what has been a massive fundraising effort. Call a vote to all the riders. Achenu Yisrael and Achim Achemer, brothers and sisters in Israel, we are with you. It's your favorite America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope. Rockland County at 91.9 on the FM dial. Around the world on the web, jmandtheam.org. Wraps up a Tuesday for us here at JMNAM. Plenty nine days appropriate programming on the stream all day long at jmnam.org. Tomorrow we're back. We'll start at 6 a.m. Make sure to join us. Till then, Nachum Segal reminding you, remember the past, live the present, and trust the future.